0: This is iFanboy 2023 All Media Year End Roundup Brought to you by iFanboy listeners just like you Sleigh bells ring Are you listening In the lane Snow is glistening A beautiful sight We're happy tonight Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away is the bluebird here to stay his new birth. he sings a love song as we go along, walking in the Hello, welcome to my Fanboy 2023 All Media Year in Roundup. My name is Connor Kilpatrick and I am here, at least in spirit, with Josh Flanagan. I'm here, baby. I'm sitting in the seat. Let's roll. And Ron Richards.
1: I'm here as well, too. You're the only healthy one. I just ran three miles this morning. Let's do it. Come on. Good
0: for you. I'm ready. Good for you. And we are iFanboy. We're the three original iFanboys. And we like comic books, but we also like a lot of other things. And every year, every year since we've been doing this show, we've been ending the year with an all-media and run We've been doing it since 2006. Jeez. I don't want to dwell on that. <laughs> We're going to talk about some of the movies and TV shows and music and books and comics and also podcasts that we enjoyed this year in 2023. You know, media is still strange since the pandemic, still figuring itself out, but we push on and enjoy what we can. And before we get to the show, quick reminder and a warning, we don't tend to spoil things on this show. It's more like a high level of things we enjoyed, but it's always possible so if there's something you see on the show list that you're really sensitive about, I would just skip it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation post of things we watched and enjoyed, and we're going to talk about why. So if you haven't seen them, there's a chance that we might spoil something yeah, for you. Know you generally but on this
0: show, but yeah, you, but you never know. Fair warning, Connor. How strict are you in the, your spoilerage at this point? I mean, you for a while you weren't watching trailers. Now that I can go to theaters beyond AMC, I'm back. I don't. I try not to watch any trailers. Yeah. Of big blockbuster films, you guys keep forgetting this, it's only the big blockbusters. I watch indie trailers all the time because I don't know anything about those movies. Fair. It's just the films I know I'm going to see anyway.
1: Well, anyway, my hope is that if you haven't, you the listener, have not seen any of these movies or TV or anything else we're going to discuss on the podcast, maybe this incites you to go check it out. That's the hope. Yes, that's the hope. The whole purpose of this discussion is to celebrate the things we enjoyed this year. And so Keep we're going to start,
0: Start as we always do, with films. And our standard film disclaimer is that we are recording this the very first week of December. You're not going to hear it till the middle of December. There's several films, you know, big films that, that haven't come out yet. You're not going to hear us talk about like Ferrari or Maestro or American Fiction.
1: Poor things just came out in theaters, right. yeah. so yeah, There's a couple yeah. you may not hear us talk
0: about. It's
2: only he said of- Ferrari, and then you started to say Portha, I thought. I was like, are you mispronouncing Porsche?
0: No. Ferrari, <laughs> Portha. Ferrari, Portha is the new model. So if there's a movie in December we haven't talked about, it's probably because we haven't seen it yet, because that's just how it goes. So let's start with the biggest film of the year and Josh Flanagan. There are a lot of surprises here is that
2: one, a movie called Barbie would be the biggest film of the year. And then two, that I could make a strong case that it was my favorite movie I saw this year. Sure. I did not know a single thing about it other than it was Margot Robbie who is deceptively talented while also being just unearthly beautiful. And I thought, that's interesting. And then uh, also you were talking about Greta Gerwig, who is a uh, auteur director. And like I said, I had no idea it was going to be. And what I didn't really expect was that I would find it as deeply funny as I did. Mm -hmm. The entire way through, you know, there's specifically, I'm sure a lot of nerds uh, will talk about it. But you know, there's a bit where they're talking about how men will sit there and tell you everything about the Godfather. And you're sitting there watching that with your wife and you're me. She's like, well, they nailed you, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. it was delightful. Like the entire thing, I didn't see it at the same time as Oppenheimer. I saw it several weeks later and it was more a case of like, well, we got to go see something. I don't know. I wrote it off because my latent sexism, I don't know. And because of that, I just didn't expect anything of it. And I, you know, my wife and I both left and just like, because of the surprise, but also just because it was incredibly well done and really well written. And I was like, Man, how did this become a really huge movie when it's clearly straddling the line of the American social divide?
1: What's interesting to me of you enjoying it so much, and just disclaimer, I still have not seen it yet. Oh, oh wow. Because I mean, I'm caught in this trap where it, I feel like it would be weird for me to watch it without my wife, but she has shown no interest in watching it. As to, That's uh, so uh, strange. At this point, yeah. I so think I'm like, so, she I, might be like me
2: in that she doesn't know anything about it or know what to expect and on the very surface level, but I'm telling you, I think she will very much enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I do too. I do too. But that said, from what I, I've heard, I like. I know what happens. I've heard all the things. I know about the Godfather thing. Blah blah blah. I mean, this seems like a movie I would like. Yes. In yes. terms of the meta, you know, like all the stuff. Like, there's nothing you wouldn't like about it. But yeah, but Josh, I'm surprised. But normally, you roll your eyes at that stuff. So I'm, it must have been really good. I'm surprised that you enjoyed it as much as you did.
2: I know what you're saying, but when stuff is done, basically, if things are metatextual and 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 you know reference other things as a crutch, as that being you know, material instead of thinking of something original to say that's the case. But, you know, there is a way to comment on society and, you know, gender roles and blah, 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 and all that stuff in a way that works well. If you're smart and you do it well, then it works. If it's, if it's hacky, it isn't, you know, the, you, this is way different now, but you know, there was a time when Kevin Williamson or Kevin Smith or any other Kevin got by by being like, they talked about Star Wars in the movie. Right. And then a thousand people tried to do that and, and call that Art and it wasn't. It was just like that. Isn't this?
0: No, is what I'm saying. That is right. not what this is at all. Yeah. It is metatextual, but not in that way. And also, it's, r- I mean, Ron's co- written by Noah Baumbach, who you love.
1: Yeah, love hate, but yes, I, no, I But, yeah, I, but you, you love his I, films. I like his love, work.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. But yeah. this was actually fun, unlike the other Noah Baumbach movies right. I've seen. Yeah. Greta Gerwig is, like Josh said, is a legitimate auteur. I've loved all of her films.
1: And she's now going to be, like, she can now write her own check for. She's doing right, Narnia yeah. next. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. She
0: gets sucked into the IP vortex. Yeah. They're starting over, I assume. Paycheck. This is the most fun I had at a movie. Uh I'm looking at our list. Several of these movies I saw with packed houses. But this was the one where I thought the roof was going to come off the place. I mean, that's how much fun it was and how much fun it was on opening weekend when the packed house for those 90% women.
1: I know, Connor, you have meticulously crafted the rundown here, but I feel like the, with the next movie that should be discussed is Oppenheimer because it's hard not to talk about Barbie without in the same breath as Oppenheimer because really what you had this summer was something that we haven't seen for a very long time, which was a completely... Born of the audience phenomenon of interest in two movies that couldn't be more different.
0: Any more thoughts on Barbie? Other than it's terrific and everyone should see it, it's very, very, very funny. Yeah,
1: we will probably watch it through
0: the holidays as we have more. I feel time, bad but, yeah. saying this. Ryan Gosling steals the show as Ken.
1: I'm not surprised by saying that at all. He's I'm, I'm a just huge you Gosling. feel bad yeah. saying it a movie
0: yeah. about Barbie, but he's she's yeah. great yeah. in it. But she's basically the straight person, whereas yeah. he gets to be the comedic person and he's he steals it anyway. Yeah. It's great. So I was the only one who went to Barbenheimer, which was the opening weekend of Barbie and Oppenheimer, seeing them both on the same day with the lunch break in the middle. And I have not been in a theater like that since the pandemic where there was hundreds of people in the theater.
1: And energy? Energy. I, uh,
0: yeah. The theater was overwhelmed because, you know, they're all on like short staffs, you know, for obvious reasons. And so we went early morning for Oppenheimer, saw it like 10 a.m., lunch, and then came back for Barbie. And they didn't have enough ticket takers just to take the tickets. The line was out the door down the street to get into the theater and people were pissed because the movies were going to start and the woman in front of me was like, didn't they anticipate this? Like everyone knew this was happening and so it just was interesting to be in the theater again when it felt like the old days of, you know, like a Jim Carrey movie opening in the 90s where it was like Bedlam or whatever you know that kind of thing it felt nice to be there even if it was just one more time again
1: I think there's a lot to be said for the phenomenon of like it's a TikTok phenomenon it's a bummer that like a week later the strike (laughs) the actor strike hit right and like pretty much you know blew any momentum that it had but there was this you know there was a strong wave in the early summer of you know movies are back post pandemic and you know you know like the uh, you know because we have been advocating going to see movies in the theater as much as possible because you don't get that experience at home
0: yeah barbie is a great film but the experience of seeing barbie in a packed house full of women who were going berserk at every crushing feminist line was you can't replicate that at all no matter how good your theater system is
2: the little girls you know and they'd come and dressed up and i just thought wow and they're super excited and i thought it's really interesting that they can can come in here and get usually stuff that gets marketed to little kids princesses and it's not the deepest thing or whatever and like oh this is a really good film that they're going to take something out of.
0: They own that bit of it. Like, they take yeah. that pinkness. Like, pink was the yeah. color of the day, right? Everyone yeah. in the theater was wearing yeah. pink. It was just and nice. My favorite part was, after the movie was over, all the women were calling each other Barbie, because that's something that happens in the film. And they were just sort of doing it organically. It was just a really great moment in the theater itself. And what was really fun was, you know, people going to Oppenheimer, who probably wouldn't necessarily normally go to Oppenheimer, because they were doing the whole thing. And there was lots of bewildered people stumbling out of that theater after three hours.
1: Well, so let's talk about Oppenheimer then. So Josh, you know, you, you had Oppenheimer on your list. What, what, what were the earmarks of Oppenheimer being a good movie experience for you?
2: So Oppenheimer, you know, is one of those movies
0: where... We were super excited for it. We were all
2: super excited. It. It's period historical storytelling about something that's really important by, you know, someone who's probably the auteur director of the time. And I've said that twice, I sound like a snob, but...
0: Well, no, we have... Probably four auto directors. No, five. I mean, we have a lot. But we're
2: we're in a world where, you know, not to go after Scorsese, we'll talk about him. And, and, you know, but like, there's a lot of superhero movies that are a big deal. So when you see somebody who's going to make an adult movie, not that kind, who has a budget and sort of carte blanche to make their thing. And, you know, they have a good track record. It's exciting. And I know by now, I saw Tenet like at home. And it was fine mm-hmm. or whatever, but I thought Ugh, that would have been quite a bit more amazing in the theater. And so I it was, yeah, was yeah, not I going to miss the chance to see Oppenheimer in the theater. And, you know, we, we talked about it already, but 100% delivered for me. I just went, that's a movie, you know, and that was the real feeling was like, oh, that's a film. That's what we talk about. And that seems so much more rare. How long was that movie? Was it super long? Three It wasn't, hours. wasn't Killers of the Fl- Yeah. Didn't feel like yeah. it. It was exactly what I wanted. And, you know, Barbie was a different theater going experience altogether but in in terms of like seeing something that makes you think you know about all these moral ambiguities and history i mean like everything that happens in that is a is a very big deal and then at the same time you know it brings it down to a really personal level where you kind of don't know what to think about oppenheimer during quite a bit of it and then also you know sort of just incredible visual language and imagery that you know and and you know if you're a certain kind of nerd you know that christopher nolan does practical effects whenever possible. So when you're watching it, you're not seeing CGI. And, you know, maybe I'm old enough or, you know, that like that really means something to me is that like you're watching people make movies the way that they used to. And so there's a deliberateness to it that I really appreciate.
0: Yeah, he actually dropped the bomb in the desert. (laughs) Just for a (laughs) second, I
2: went, did he? Like, I'd almost (laughs) believe it. I know. I thought it was delightful, but not in a way that made you feel good. I don't know. I, I don't know that I it made me feel good in all the ways that a great movie is supposed to. I will probably never watch it again. Interesting. It was exhausting. I loved
0: it. I thought I'm still struggling to pick out my top five of the year, at least to put them in order. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, it, yeah. Barbie Oppenheimer. The next two films we're going to talk about, they're all in that list. But yep. I love this movie, like you, Josh. I didn't feel the length at all. The performances were amazing. Killian Murphy was out of this world. It's you know one of those Nolan casts where everyone's in it, and they're all terrific. It felt like every best actor winner of the last couple of years was in the movie, even in yeah. tiny cameos, even David Crumholtz who should win a Best Actor oh. just because. So Robert Jr. might win an Oscar. You nailed it. It's one of those movies they just don't make anymore unless it's Nolan or someone like him. Yeah. And how many more of those do we have left? Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to go to everyone one until they stop. Yeah, exactly. It was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, it
1: was definitely an experience. It was one that, again... That sound.
0: Again, yes, yeah, Again, going back was, to the yep. theater
1: versus watching from home, like, and that was the thing, was that Barbie and Oppenheimer came out in July, very busy time, you know, for, for me personally, like, couldn't get the, like, I had to choose Barbie or Oppenheimer, and I chose Oppenheimer, and I'm glad I did, because seeing it in the theater with that rumbling sound, and also with the quiet, you know, mm-hmm, and, like, the, mm-hmm, the dramatic mm-hmm. moments, and seeing it in a theater of people, like, it was just, like, no other experience. I, and I think that's correct. It was masterful filmmaking, for like sure. Like,
2: if you had to pick a movie to see in the theater, if you could only see one, that's the one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, what's interesting is, you know, it, it also made a billion dollars, but it obviously was goosed by the Barbenheimer phenomenon. Sure. There's no way to ever know. But, you know, his last tenant did pretty okay in the pandemic. Dunkirk made over $300 million. Like, all of his last movies have made a lot of money. People tend to go to movies because he's directing them for
1: yeah, whatever I, I miracle that's...
0: reason it's happened to. And we'll never know. I'm most curious what this one would have done without that phenomenon, but it is what it is. I wonder I what it would have done if he'd never done Batman.
1: Well, yeah. Nothing. That's what kind of got him in the public's eye. Yeah, he, yeah. right. he would have been a memento
0: guy. Right. have made yeah. small little films.
1: Well, I think it would have done well, but I don't think it would. I think the shot in the arm with the phenomenon definitely helped it.
0: It kept going, though. Like that, it, it went beyond that it weekend. Had legs. It kept making money. It had likes. Anyway, I just loved it. I was so happy to see it. Yeah. It was a good year for theater going.
1: It was a good year for theater going, and it was also a good year for very, very long movies because <laughs> the f- the first movie on my list, of course, was Killers of the Flower Moon from Martin Scorsese, and, you know, starring Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, and I forget the woman's name. But this was a hotly anticipated film from Scorsese, uh, Lily Gladstone. That's Lily Gladstone. Was, sorry, Lily Gladstone
0: in the Oscar most likely winning role. Yeah,
1: I mean for sure, two hundred million dollar plus budget. Scorsese's first movie with Apple TV as a producer partner, and now he's post post uh, Netflix. He's just going from. Tech company to It'll tech company. Name. Whatever it get takes. The money. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I feel like the the narrative from this film going into it was the length. It was like, oh my god, it's it's three and a half hours or whatever to, you know, however long it is. What was it? Three hours, twenty four minutes or something like that. Seven nuts like that. Yeah. It was just gripping and enthralling, and a story of American history that is not widely known or told. That is fascinating and tapping into everything there is about America in the early 1900s and that, you know, kind of transition and going all the way back to the founding of North America in the 1600s. And, you know, like it just, it taps into so much and it's just beautifully shot, beautifully done, masterful.
0: There are still shots from the film I think about. He does some really beautiful work in this. It's not like, and we did a whole review show on this, but, you know, he's known as the guy who created that he didn't create it, but really took the reins on that MTV style. That's horrible to say. But the fast cutting, the fast editing, yep. mm-hmm. the fast paced. And this is the opposite of that. He, he, yeah. he lingers. And that, his last film, The Irishman, was like that too. But there's some lingering slow-mo in this movie. Like the dancing on the, when you discover oil. and yeah. oof, The fire through the pebbled glass window. He's still got it. Yep.
2: It's a term that people use a lot. Oh, self-indulgent or whatever. But like when you've earned it and you're Martin Scorsese and you're like, I want to yeah. sit on this shot for a really long time. Great. I trust you. You know, this this is you, making you've art it. Like yes. He's yeah. eighty years old. It's still pop 80? art to a certain extent, which no, is but he's not, still making art. It's right, still but, art, which, which isn't a, let a bad the man thing. Make his art. But it just yeah. happens to me that his art, you know, is very entertaining and he yeah. gets away with it in that way. And it's not entertaining like, you know, talking down to it or sort of giving the people the red meat they want or whatever. It's just that, you know, his sensibilities, I think, lend themselves to films that are thoughtful and beautiful. But also, you know, are entertaining.
0: It is entertaining, but it's also horribly depressing and sad a movie. Sure.
1: Oh, yeah. It was heartbreaking. Like that. that's the one thing we talked, we talked about in the review podcast was like the amount of yeah. the, the repetition of death in this movie was just like it was overwhelming until I hit the epiphany of like, right, he's using that as a tactic in telling the story and it became that much more valuable, that much more well, You important. had to feel the oppressive yeah. nature of the Exactly. Murders.
0: Yeah. Yeah. i actually thinking about it now. That was the first week and I was really sick. So the sickness I'm in now started with Kills of the Fire Moon. It probably made you sad. What, by the way, maybe "entertaining" is the wrong
2: word for lack of a no, better one. it was one, but
0: entertaining, but it's also sad.
2: Compelling? I don't know. Yeah, compelling. you know, compelling it, is the right word. Yeah. It wasn't difficult.
0: Difficult, yeah. but it wasn't difficult. Does that make sense? You know what was interesting is I got cocky and I brought in food, not brought in, but from the concession stand. I for three-hour movie, I normally don't, and for Scorsese three and a half-hour moves, like I didn't eat or drink during The Irishman at all. But I was like, ah oh, fuck it, I'll just. I had a soda, I had candy. I didn't feel it. I didn't feel like the movie was long. I didn't have to go to the bathroom. I was locked in on the film. Yeah, uh, I never, for one second, looked at my watch. It was entirely compelling, very un leo like performance. He plays a kind of a yeah. dumb, yeah, a, a screw up. And he's got a prosthetics on to make him look like, like he's he's just not the leading man type. And it was interesting. Yeah. They were all really yeah. good. It was a really great. I mean, it's, oh, he's so
1: good, just so good. Yeah, and to the point that you said earlier, Connor like, this was a good year for movies, and hard to nail down one, but this is definitely rising to the top of the list in terms of one of the best.
0: These first three are in my top five, for sure. I would also put The Holdovers in my top five. I would agree. The latest film from Alexander Payne. This I haven't seen and very much want to. I'm not going to spoil Uh, it. I I literally
1: watched it last night knowing we were recording and I wanted to talk about it.
0: Paul uh, Giamatti may get an Oscar nomination for this. And if he does, he will 100% deserve it. Payne doesn't make a lot of films. I think he's only made one bad one. I've loved the other ones. Is that The Downsizing? Yeah, Downsizing. The rest, I think, were terrific. Bad is relative in that context, too. I I just didn't like the movie at all, but that's fine. This is maybe his best one. Really? Which is hard to say, considering election and- uh, and This is really good. I have never seen a trailer that
2: instantly told me what they were trying to do, and that the thing that they were trying (laughs) to do was exactly what I wanted to see.
1: And the trailer alone, I agree with you, was one of the highlights of, of going to the movies this year, seeing that trailer in a theater- I was like, "This is the '70s." Without, mm-hmm. Normally, what you see is the people who make the trailers are not related to the film, right. usually yeah. at, at all, right? And it might not be in this case, or whatever. But and without spoiling it or, sure. or giving it away, Josh, there is a through line from the trailer to the movie, which I cannot Beautiful. wait for you to watch. A, yeah. No, I, so I thought, see. I
2: thought that it, like, it
0: visually instantly told me what it was in a way that just yeah. delighted me. It takes place in the '70s. It's shot post-production. They make it look like it's the '70s. The grain of the film and the aspect ratio. Yeah, takes place at a you know, rich, exclusive boarding school. I think it's in New Hampshire. Over the Christmas Exeter break. Academy? It's a school like that. Right. Where um, some of the students have to stay behind for various reasons. So one of the faculty has to stay with them and it's Paul Giamatti's character as well as the cook for the school who's played by the actress who plays the cop on Only Murders in the Building. Yep. And It just turns to this little found family story about the holidays and these characters and their lives. And it's a long movie. I think it's over two hours.
1: It was like 2.15 or so. Yeah, I remember checking it. But it never drags. It it doesn't
0: feel like it, but it really allows them to dig deep into the characters and the situation. And Paul Giamatti is just wonderful. So good. It's no surprise. I'm not breaking any new ground telling people this, but he really comes alive in this role. He indulges in every line reading. In this. He really digs into this character and I saw him do an interview about it. He loved playing this character.
1: You see it in the trailer, Josh, so this is a spoiler, but like he gets sense that he's the teacher that nobody wants to get, right? That nobody likes and that sort of thing. And as the movie develops, you kind of, you, there's a sympathy that is developed not only for him, but for the kid who I think is a junior or senior, you know, like he's stuck in junior year, but I think he's older than that because he's a troubled kid. The kid and the, the chef. Wait,
2: you're telling me that over the course of the, they, they bond in a relationship and we find out they're all more than we thought they were? <laughs> exactly. That exactly. is a crazy concept. Are you kidding me? It's also- <sighs> I haven't seen that since Dutch. But It's, it's so hilariously
0: good. funny and it's at times really sad and heartbreaking. Yeah. And I just think Payne's another auteur in a row. But he's one of our best filmmakers, even if he doesn't work all that often. So, when he does make a film, it's an event for me. I went by myself on like a Friday afternoon. Yeah. There were more people in the theater with me to see The Holdovers than the next day in the same theater to see The Marvels.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, that's no surprise.
0: It's L.A. It was me and a bunch of much older people. And we all really appreciated and loved the movie. I was with my people. It was great. Yeah. Such a good movie. If you haven't seen it, it's still in theaters takes place during christmas it's kind of a holiday movie oh,
1: well that's what i was gonna say I, I was i wanted to be like is this an entry in the movie that takes place during christmas christmas movie category I, I right because it it's not about be. christmas but not it takes place during christmas dur- but it's it, the holidays are omnipresent you hey, know okay. and there's a christmas party and that sort of things so, yeah.
2: if you change the holiday does it still work if you make it thanksgiving uh, yes. break I mean, you yeah, make it yeah, easter yeah, break yeah, or could, whatever mm, spring yeah. break
0: it still I think works.
1: It does. I don't know. I don't know if you have the if you have the emotional resonance of it. Not holiday kind of. I mean, I don't, I don't know if a kid Christmas. would be as
0: devastated about being stuck at school over Christmas break yeah. as he would over like Easter break. But mm-hmm.
1: also, bravo for Tate Donovan showing up at the end.
0: Everyone who's in It's really oh, good. So it's good. Really, so and good. it's and it's full of. Yeah. There's a Wahlberg in it, like as a guy in a bar, like it, it's very New England '70s awesomeness. It's really, really good. Everyone needs to see it. Yeah.
2: Agreed. When I first saw the trailer, I thought that it might be a new Tom McCarthy movie. And then as we went through it, I literally was like, this is Alexander Payne. You know, like you just know, because there's not so many people who could do it.
1: It's great. Well, talking about auteurs, I was very excited when David Fincher's film, The Killer, came out, you know, and big Fincher fan despite not watching the majority of what he's done while on Netflix over <laughs> these past you know whatever he's been very to
0: serial killers
1: yeah very I didn't watch Mindhunter I didn't watch any of that I, Obviously great we, we, it was we, good we, it I've was heard good. that but I, yeah just ha- I haven't gotten into it
0: you gotta like serial killing though.
2: fantastic Charlie Manson
1: we talked about Mank. I feel like on the show a couple of years mm-hmm. ago I enjoyed that but so the killer was interesting and it had me for a couple of reasons one is that you know the fact that it was based on a graphic novel that I've read and enjoyed that Archaea put out right yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you, you know did the US distribution right when Archaea started. And then also that it had Fassbender, who I'm a huge Fassbender fan. So I was already, you know, Fincher, Fassbender, based on a graphic novel. I was already there. But as the movie's coming out and they start revealing the fact that they use like 24 Smith songs in the movie, I was like, (laughs) oh, well then... (laughs)
2: I did. I, I mean, I was waiting to talk with you about that uh, yeah. here, is that at first it was like, oh, he's listening to it. And I was like, oh, that's all he listens to. And I just want to know what that's
1: about. And kudos to Trent Reznor, because he's the one who convinced Venture to do it. But uh, The Killer is similar to similar to the holdovers in spirit, not in execution, but, you know, was, you know, reminded me of 70s genre revenge film.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: But done with a contemporary kind of approach and mindset, and and you know, and much more contemporary, you know, the usage of brand logos and things like that. But it was such a methodological. The film was broken up in the chapters, so you had you a clear methodical? step of what was happening. Methodical. I'm sorry. Okay. A clear step of what was happening at each point as the revenge plot continues. Like the first twenty minutes are gripping, and nothing happens.
0: I thought it was one of the best yeah. twenty minutes of any oh, movie I saw. So so, so good. good. The so, opening so good. twenty minutes had me on the edge of my seat
1: you get introduced to the character and understand yeah. what makes him tick, what his role as an assassin is, how he does it. It starts building up this idea that you are, you know, seeing this, you know, season pro doing what he does best. And the rest of the movie goes from there. And I thought it was such a great setup and the action and the pace and just everything was just like, it hit so many notes for me throughout the entire thing. That was, it was just, it was just such a delight. Another one that I, you know, was only in theaters for a couple of weeks. I scrambled to go see it in the theater because I did want to have that experience. And I was glad I did a- to hear the music very loudly, but also I loved what Fincher did with the music where like you didn't hear it plainly, right? It, it was diegetic.
2: Yes. Oh, uh, thank you for using that word. Brilliant.
1: When he had his headphones in, you heard it muffled because it was inside his head, except when you saw his POV, it was crystal clear and loud because it was what he was hearing. Mm-hmm. It was so done masterfully. Can't recommend it anymore. I re- really, really love
0: this movie. I know there's probably film geeks at home who are tearing their hair out. they keep calling everyone an auteur, but I'm also going to call John Carney an auteur as well. He is. And he had his latest film come out. It came out on Apple, but I also saw it in the theater. Flora and Son, I think is his fourth film? His fourth film about music? That's about right, yeah. I love this movie. I didn't love his last one, Sing Street. I thought it was okay. I didn't love it. But this one felt like a return closer to the tone of once. Perhaps a little sillier, but... I felt more like in that vein, takes place in Dublin, stars Eve Hewson, who is Bono's daughter. I mean, this movie made me cry. This movie had music that I thought was really catchy. It had some incredible scenes I still think about. Now, I just I think he just does these wonderful little miracle movies about life and love and music, and he never ends the movie in a Hollywood fashion. Yeah. Well, I guess it's kind of a spoiler, but in none of his movies do the central characters come together in a romantic way. And it, another director in another world, they would. That is a spoiler, I guess, in a way. But
2: it's very apparent in Once and uh, Begin Again that that's the way that they go with it. And I love that. I remember watching Begin Again. We watched it recently. And, and mm-hmm. it was the
0: same thing. Like, they,
2: I like, love that movie. There was never really a moment where it was romantic. Was other? and I was like,
0: Any No, other there movie? was one moment when they come out of the train and they look at each other and there's a long pause. And, they're, and in their heads, they're deciding if they're going to go that way. And they don't. Right. And that's the one moment. But it's
2: not even that it is romantic. It's they think about it because they, I don't know, maybe it's like a postmodern thing where like they realize they're in a movie or we do and we're watching it while they make that decision. But then by having them not do that, they make it clear that that's not what this is about. Right. I haven't seen the movie, but I bet I would be like, oh, they shouldn't end up together and I bet they don't because I trust this filmmaker.
0: It's wonderful. It really is. It's a. Del- I mean, I love big Barbie, big Oppenheimer, big Killers of the Far Moon, big superhero movies, but I also... Love sure. going to the theater for the holdovers for *Florence and Son for the next movie I'm going to talk about. There's the
1: whole quiet, small film category, which, you know, the this, this small indie, you know, no explosions, that, that kind of thing, which I tend to look forward more so than the Oppenheimers of the world and the big budget and stuff like that, because that's where the real kind of gems kind of come out. And *Florence and Son was just, was just so delightful. It was just such a great time.
0: Yeah. I was literally thinking about it today, the um, Joni Mitchell scene. I just yeah. popped in my head. It's wonderful. The lead is incredibly good. I don't care yeah. whose daughter she is. She's incredibly good in the movie. She's funny. She's charming. She does all the things she needs to do. The characters who you think you kind of hate in the beginning, you end up liking by the end. Yeah. His movies are a little gift. They don't really make any money. I don't know why he keeps getting to do them. They don't cost any money. S- somebody likes it. Somebody likes yeah. them. I like them. I don't get to greenlight them, though. But <laughs> yeah. I'm just happy whenever they come out. And Florence, Son, if you saw any of his films, it's it really is, I don't want to say return to form, because Sing Street wasn't a bad movie, but...
1: No, Sing Street wasn't bad, but it, it wasn't as good as Once or the you know the other ones. I love Begin yeah, again yeah. as well.
0: So anyway, Florence and Son is a wonderful little family movie about love and music and life. And go see it or see it on your TV, I guess. Begin but. again is
2: top top quality Ruffalo. Oh, it's yeah. it's that it's, might be peak Ruffalo. I, yeah. I think it is. Like it may not be. I'm not saying it's the best Ruffalo ever, but there's no better Ruffalo than that.
0: Yeah. When I met him a couple years ago at Comic Con, I I didn't talk to him about Avengers. I said I just want to talk about it beginning. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and he was like, "Oh, okay." Like he did that rumble thing. Like, "Oh, yeah." (laughs) He was so happy. Yeah, I probably watched the movie ten or fifteen times. I love that movie.
1: So, in the same category as the small, you know, no explosion movies, you know, I feel like there's a subcategory that is uh, business pictures. (laughs)
0: you love that subgenre? Stories
2: of business, and I do love that subgenre, right? They're your natural disaster movie.
1: Yeah, exactly. I had been tracking this for a while, and as soon as it came out, I, I watched it as soon as I could. Blackberry, which was the story of the rise and fall of the titular technology product, the BlackBerry. Jay Baruchel in lead, as along with a masterful performance by Glenn Howard in, of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame. And AP Bio. Let's not... Yeah, yeah right. But yeah, it basically tells the story of uh, the company Rim from Canada, who developed and created the BlackBerry and created an entire product marketplace of a data-connected mobile phone and then lost it in a day when when Apple announced the iPhone. There's much more time spent on the Rise than there is in the fall, which is what I preferred. It's very easy. The fall's pretty quick. Yeah, the fall's pretty quick and it's very easy to tell it, especially with what happened there. But the story of the Rise was just so engaging and it was done in that low-budget indie film kind of way. But, you know, it takes place in the in the mid to late 90s and the, there's an Elastica song in there, right, to put you in the in that time period and takes you into the 2000s and you see the development, especially Jay Baruchel's character of who when we're introduced to him is you know kind of a nevishy kind of techie nerd guy and by the day before Apple comes out he's wearing a black turtleneck he's got a, <laughs> a, a sense of design to him you know with some success it's a compelling story yes it's a recent story but it's one that is worth watching I just see what happened and it was just it was uh, it, it was funny too it was, just, it was, it was well done you, you want to balance the mix of like dramatic interpretation of real events with inject some humor and some like kind of larger than life performances to kind of pull the audience into, you know, because you want to go over P&L and budgets and, and all that oh, sort of stuff. would be a very boring movie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it, it struck the right balance of all of that. It was just a great, very, very well done. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I don't think I'm going to watch it in the repurposed TV series that they're doing, which I oh, think geez. is fascinating. They're cutting it up in, into episodes and releasing it on, on TV. Oh, gosh.
2: How much Dennis Reynolds is in the character?
1: He is a
2: completely different person. That's both a positive and a negative for me. I could go either way, because I just can't get enough Dennis Reynolds, basically.
1: The guy he was playing is a real character.
2: Sure.
0: Ron, in the same genre, did you watch the Tetris movie?
1: Yeah, I did. I really liked that. That, that, was that really good. nearly made my list here, but that was was, yeah, good, I did yeah. like the Tetris movie, yeah. I loved that movie. But yeah, so check out Blackberry. Good Canadian business story.
2: Air. Air is a movie about design and marketing. At Nike and how they designed the Air Jordan one. And I went to see it in the theater. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Uh, it, it tickles a lot of nostalgic nerves. And I I thought it was really fun. It's not amazing. It's not breaking any records. But if you're talking about a movie that and it's funny because we were sort of talking about this earlier is like nostalgia and references or whatever. It firmly puts you in a world that is the same world as our adolescence. And it was very effective in that way. Because, you know, Damon and Affleck are basically the same generation. I can't believe I haven't
0: seen this. I can't believe you haven't either. I don't know why. It's on Prime now, right? Yeah, it is. yeah. it's been on Prime since, like, yeah. April. I know. Yeah, and I, yeah. every time I think about it, I go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then something happens and I don't watch it. That's the problem with streaming. Because there's so many goddamn things. Sure. And it's always going to be there. So I don't feel
2: any urgency to get yeah. to see it. But here's the other thing. Is that I got out of it and I went, sneakers are over. And since then. Oh, you haven't bought any sneakers since then. I haven't. Well, that's not true but. <laughs> I was actually out at some point and I looked around and I was like, oh, it jumped the shark. It's over. And since then, the resale market has died. They come up with New Jordans all the time and it used to be really hard to get them or whatever. And now, like, it's completely changed.
0: Why did you think that? What made you think it?
2: It hit mainstream, basically. Mm. You know, it was like a cool thing for a while. And then during that the that's pandemic. Like the
0: sneaker market. You know why? I started buying them.
2: Yeah, right there, there you is go. your fucking death knell. You know what I mean? Like, like that's that's the deal. But I mean, like, it's totally changed. I was that. this was the top, the fever pitch, you know. It's definitely sort of taken a big drop since then, which I just think is Or it's are you just
0: saying that in the hopes that people will stop buying and it will make your sneakers nah, more boring. valuable? I bought a bunch of Vans since then. Oh, wow, it's over. Oh, man, well, I have a pair of suede half cabs and they're just the best shoes ever. I'm going to go for my final auteur director on my list here and talk about Asteroid City, which is so funny because last year I talked about the French Laundry Dispatch. No, yeah. and then we talked about uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel a few years ago, and I used to hate Wes Anderson. The story arc of you and Wes Anderson is fascinating, by and the you way. still haven't seen the Royal Tenon Bombs. <laughs> no, I haven't. I don't like early Wes Anderson. I just don't. Yeah, oh, it's not the man, point. That, I,
1: I, don't like, I don't like recent Wes Anderson. You are I know, yeah. which is funny. Yeah, exactly
2: but you are missing out on on what I would
0: say is peak Hackman. Yeah. I feel like that's the French connection. But anyway, Asteroid City Peak old Hackman. Great Hackman. He's always been old. He came out of the womb old. He came out of the womb he was fifty five. You know so, what? Make any excuse you want. I just really respect the bizarre world he's working in right now. Like this is very similar to the French dispatch. It's very episodic. It's very mannered in the way it's shot. And I just respect that he has this aesthetic that he loves and he's going to keep doing it. And I like that he gets these absolutely out of this world amazing casts. I thought this story of this strange play within a movie, within a pl- like it was this layered story that we kept going deeper into where the movie we were watching was actually a play being put on. Wasn't that Rushmore? I don't know. And then the play it being was. put on was then this guy's. It's crazy experience. And then I think there was a wonderful part where the, we'd leave the story and we follow an actor out for a smoke break. And he talks to Margot yeah. Robbie. And like it was just this wonderfully bizarre, meta-layered thing that was wonderful. Tom Hanks was very interesting in the movie. It was a very non-Tom Hanks vibe. And he really had to play it very restrained. I thought that Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson sort of subplot was a wonderful little love story. Yeah. I just loved it.
1: There's a lot going on at any given point in a Wes Anderson film. Mm-hmm. The production design is just above any other. Fi- like it's so like it's this so meticulous. To that is just incredible. And then every character being truly a quote unquote character, right? Mm-hmm. And like you wanting to know more about them, and it gets revealed through the scenes. But then to add in the layer of the postmodern storytelling approach and almost give you two movies within the one movie mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun to watch and i can understand why i don't mean this in a denigrating way but like normal people are turned off by it because like what the fuck is this <laughs> it's challenging it's definitely challenging yeah, it's, it's not shall- normal. definitely challenging yeah yeah exactly
0: And i just respect his commitment to it you know yeah. there could be a lot of pressure to make, make this a more of a normal film like the setup's funny enough right like all yeah. these characters together in this desert Hotel when an alien arrives. You don't need to make it a weird movie to make it entertaining, but he's right. going to tell his story the way he wants to tell it, and I respect that.
1: Yeah. So talking about a small indie movie that is very niche and specific to me, there was a movie that I've been following along for the past couple of years about its uh, production and then of ultimate release, and it finally came out um, at the very end of 2022, but I saw it in 23, Pinball, the Man Who Saved the Game. This is a biopic about a gentleman by the name of Roger Sharp, who is internationally famous in the pinball hobby because he is the guy who proved to the New York City government that pinball was not a game of chance, it was a game of skill Mm. in the 70s because- Mm. Fiorello LaGuardia in the 30s, following bans across the country, banned pinball from New York City. And actually, for a while, pinball was illegal in the entire country from like 1940 to the, the 70s. They smashed them into the river and dropped them in the river and did all that sort of like theatrical BS. I
2: just like, I know that this is obvious. That's so dumb. Yes. <laughs> like, it's exceedingly dumb. There was also somebody out there like, yeah, smash them.
1: Yeah. It was caught up in that in the you know they vice. It was gambling. Yeah, they thought it was gambling and it was gambling in a way that was by chance. And anybody who plays pinball knows that it's not nothing to do with chance. It's about your control of the ball and how you can do it. And Roger Sharp is famous because he called his shot, basically, he pulled the babe That He showed up with a pinball machine into the New York City Chamber of Commerce or whatever whatever the councilman chamber. Um he brought a pinball machine city and he was city council, that's what it is. And he was gonna do a demonstration to show it was a game of skill, and someone on the council thought they asked. Smarted him and said, "That's great, but don't do it with your pinball machine. Do it with that one that we brought in—a different game."
0: Ooh, right.
1: And so he, Roger, just shrugged and said, "Okay." And then he proceeded to—they—they they all gathered around the pinball machine. There's a famous photo of all the city councilmen with Roger by the game. He basically showed them. He said, "Okay, I'm gonna plunge the ball, and then I'm gonna do this, 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 and this, and and get a jackpot." And then he did it. Then he did it again. And then he did it again. What year does this take place? Did that event happen? It yeah. was in the 70s. Okay. It was like 75 maybe Just or trying so. to picture
2: it. Well, the city's in good yeah. shape by then. They want to make sure you get rid of pinball at that point. That's going to yeah. fix things.
1: That's
0: definitely not yeah. just window dressing for the real problems.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it starred Mike Feist, Feist uh, who was in West Side Story, the uh, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Mm. He was Riff. He's been a Broadway actor and he's in a, been in a couple of films. He's in a film coming out next year called Challengers. That's got, got some buzz around it with Zendaya. He was great. What was great about the film was that the filmmakers chose not to focus on that event of the moment of him saving pinball, you know, of, of like proving it, but rather telling the story of the man and rather and, and his Roger's life up to that point, his, his marriage and his wife and his interest in pinball and, and you know, balancing that off with, with being young in New York City and trying to make it. And it was just really heartwarming. And yes, I'm a fan of pinball and I love it. And all of us who like pinball went to see it and liked it. But this was one where I'm like, anybody who doesn't know anything about pinball, would enjoy this film it felt like a movie that they don't make anymore right. if that makes any sense it felt like a 90s indie kind of thing and so i would i would i recommend it strongly if it's streaming i think it's free on hulu it's like 90 minutes it's like the right length it's like it's just all around well done
2: when you said it seemed like a kind of movie they didn't make anymore i instantly pictured a movie starring jimmy stewart as the guy who saves pinball i'm gonna i'm gonna pull it back here you'll s- they wouldn't make that movie anymore
0: well, he's dead, so. That's, that's <laughs> true. The timeline doesn't work at all. <laughs> no. But I, like at the end, <laughs> it's ghoulish. very uplifting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very uplifting. Wait, yeah, are they yeah, going to use his
2: plan. corpse? Well, if, if he <laughs> wanted to make
0: a Jimmy Stewart movie, you'd have to use his corpse. He's the only thing you can do. <laughs> right,
2: I see. This is, not a, yeah. this is not a fantasy. We have to keep it as real as possible. Got it. Right. <laughs> Elemental. I haven't talked about a kid's movie for a while. That used to be my thing. Ron, you have to take over the kid's movie. Stuff
1: I, I really ha- I could not talk about the Paw Patrol I know, movie I know but you yeah, got you so. gotta try you gotta
2: try harder there's a lot of there's a lot of whatnot about Pixar movies and and sort of going back and forth you know and how they're derivative or whatever but one day I was like oh, let's go see a movie they will go see Elemental we go to and and I just thought. And this is not like my favorite movie of all time, but I thought it was perfectly delightful. You know, it's a pretty standard, you know, it's a metaphor about different types of people and racism and immigrants and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, they stuck all the stuff that they had to. I'm watching it with kids and I'm like, OK, there's the right sort of lessons coming in here. And then finally, at the same time, I thought that the visuals were fantastic. So you got people made of water and people made of gas and people made of fire. And I thought that that was visualized really well. And and wait, there's wait, wait, some. Wait. You're saying there's a man what's made of gas in this there movie. There is a man what's made of gas, but don't worry, he's one of the good ones. Okay, good. I just think it has become extremely. I was going to say fashionable, but it's it's you know it's become very standard for people like uh, oh, these aren't good anymore. You know, like whatever. But it's like they're not for you in a way. Right. And, and I think that it's very discounting to not realize like, yes, the stories are familiar in certain ways or whatever, but like, you know, so, some of the thought and design that goes on gets completely discounted. I don't know, maybe that stuff doesn't matter to people in the same way, but I enjoyed it. Like, you know, I go into kids movies half the time and we don't do it a lot anymore, you know, and, and you don't expect a lot but if I can you know sit through the whole thing and sort of enjoy myself like you know that's that's a good time
1: yeah and I think I think there's been a lot of you know kind of you know Pixar's had a bad run or or, or the perception that Pixar's had a bad run right through the pandemic and all and and the expectations after you know inside out and and toy Story and all these like really great you know kind of moments and movies in the last 20 years but uh, I took my kids to see Elemental as well and a to your point like they loved it. They spent yeah. the entire the the entire summer. Every time we went in the pool, we pl- quote unquote played elemental. Right, and one of them was Wade, and the other one was Ember, and they were like, "Yeah." That is a sign to me that it works. But then, too, as an adult watching the film, like it's clear what the allegories were, sure. and like the you know the the kind of you know racism and stuff like that. But like it wasn't kind of hit it over your head, you know, immigration and things like that. Those as the theme, you see that as an adult. But it was also a really well done yeah. telling of that story in a kind of emotional, personal kind of manner. And it looked great. And the fact that this came out and didn't have a, you know, $100 million weekend, it was issued a flop, but then just slowly over the rest of this year continued to run in theaters and is now considered a hit. Right. You know, like a long tail hit shows that I think this category is changing and this is, is evolving.
2: You know, you've got a studio that invents a genre in a certain way. And yeah. so for a long time, everything new is an A plus. It's very hard to keep that up while you're still sort of following a formula. So something comes out that's a B plus, A minus. It's like, well, they've lost it. And it's like, well, right. you know, what do you want? It's not, it's not yep.
0: Tenet. It's not. It's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So last year in the show, I talked about, I think it was last year, how I watched all the Fast and Furious films over the pandemic lockdown situation. this year, So this is the first time I got to see a Fast and the Furious film in theaters. It was Fast X, the 10th, well, I guess the 11th if you count the spinoff. Fast and the Furious film in the series. And it was all I thought it would be. I hoped it would be. It was loud. It was bombastic. It featured crazy, over-the-top stunts involving cars. It was directed by Louis Letier. Let- 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 Lettier? Incredible Let- Hulk? Incredible Hulk, other films. He's not the best guy they've had on these films, but he made a fun enough over-the-top action story. This time they added Jason Momoa as the bad guy, who was deliciously over-the-top. There was a lot of scowling from Vin Diesel. You know, at this point it's like it's this crazy multi. I think it's it's been you know multi-decade story that's been going on with these same characters. They keep adding people. Alan Richson was added this time. Jason Statham is still hanging around. Charlize Theron. And they keep saying they're going to end it, but they keep adding more. I think originally it was supposed to be 10, then 11, now 12. Now I think they're saying 13 films. Who knows? They can't seem to stop. They don't make any other movies, these people. They just keep making these movies over and over again. I had a good time watching it, even if it wasn't the best one in the series or the best, even the best one in the recent series. It was still a lot of fun to see it in person in the theater and experience the sound and the picture and the overwhelmingness of the car chases in the theater setting. It delivered for you. It delivered. It was fun. I had a fun time in the theater that day.
1: We'll talk about a fun time in the theater. The fifth film in the Indiana Jones series, Indiana Jones and the Doll Destiny, definitely got a lot of skepticism with you know harrison ford being in his 80s and especially the bad taste in our mouth from the fourth film
0: to be fair he was 79 when they made the movie all
1: right fair enough he was 79 when they made the movie yeah you know, this is the first indiana jones film not directed by spielberg it was directed by james mangold of, of logan fame and really did its best to kind of cap the series and you know leave in the ca- you know harrison ford and the character of indiana jones in a place where you know it could you know it could say that's a wrap on this whole it gotta you know, be done right character. God, I hope so. I'm glad. I'm glad there was no passing of the mantle or anything like that. You know, I think they're
0: the done. Thing. Feels like they're done. Feels like they're done.
1: You know, was it as good as Raiders or as Last Crusade? No, absolutely not. You can't recapture that magic. Was it better than the fourth movie? Absolutely. Did my wife and I get a sitter and go into the city and have a nice dinner and go to movies and have a great time? Because you know, one of the key linkage points in our relationship is Indiana Jones films. We totally did. You know, it, it delivered on the promise of a fun night at the movies. In terms terms of what we wanted i didn't read into it too much i didn't overanalyze it too much i didn't complain about the de-aging technology or the use
0: of cgi why would you it looked amazing
1: yeah right and so you know like ultimately for what i wanted out of an indiana jones film knowing all you know the fact that harrison ford is aging all stuff like that it absolutely delivered on it and i don't think it was the best movie i saw of the year but i had a great time seeing it and i'm glad that we had the opportunity to do it one more time thumbs up on indiana jones for me
2: I think we're talking about a movie that is exactly what you want it to be in a genre setting. Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Again, we've talked about a lot of these movies on our media split throughout the year. But Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, uh, absolutely delivered and then some on its promise about what it was supposed to be. And we've talked about this before, but it's a movie we don't see anymore. You know, it's a very specific genre thing in in a fantasy setting. You know, Dungeons and Dragons, I don't know if people know it, but like, it's really a nomenclature for a genre. It doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter, you know, who the characters are, what it is. There's nods to what the game is, but that's not really the main point. But you'll have, you know, thieves and warriors and different kinds of monsters and things like that. I feel like we sound like old people all the time because I was like, this is the movie these used to make when we were kids. But I don't think that that means that they don't make it means that they don't make movies like this anymore. And I don't think that there's an age limit on those sorts of things. Because everything, you know, not everything, but so many of the big releases that we see in theaters are very similar to one another. And then also at the same time, Dungeons and Dragons movies have existed and they've never done well. And so to sort of have them get it right through here, I thought it was great. It's sort of, I was trying to think, it like, it's almost like a Guardians of the Galaxy kind of uh, successfulness in that you saw it and you're like, I don't know if they'll be able to make that work. But they did. They did all of the right things. Uh, and, and just sort of made a fun movie with a fun ensemble cast. You know, it wasn't trying to be more than it was. There was no great message. It was just a fun time with some swords and some magic stuff.
1: Doesn't get better than that. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. I'm, I'm right there with you. I thought this was a great time in the movies. Exactly. Yeah. And and
2: it's you know, one of those things I think if you're a kid and you're eight or nine or whatever and you watch that, like, this is one of those things like, Wow. I like this kind of thing. And also, if we look, you know, in comics, we see stories like this all the time in comics. But they have not found their way into movies for whatever reason, which is the strangest thing.
0: I mean, I think what you're saying, I felt kind of like an 80s movie filtered through the modern lens of... Mm. I love this. I thought it was terrific. They still can't tell us who is completely straight, right? They have to kind of wink and nod at things. They kind mm-hmm. of, this is as close as you're probably going to get to them doing it straight nowadays. Winking and nod, but in a way that I think went with the fun and wasn't cheap. No, it and wasn't odd. winking and way. because usually what happens is they're winking and a nodding in a way that undermines it, like uh, know, like the Brady Bunch films, right? It's like mm-hmm. isn't this all stupid? Like, well, what am right. I what am I doing here then? If you think it was this stupid, like that's the tone a lot of these films go for. That wasn't the tone of this movie. This was mm-hmm. this is incredibly cool and fun. We're still going to wink and nod at things, which is totally fine. It just felt very much also like that kind of 80s adventure movie that they don't really make. And this movie did okay, but probably not enough that I'll ever do another one. I had a good time. I had a really good time. All my neighbors and friends who play D&D like crazy loved it.
1: Yeah, I hope they make another one. I'd totally go see another one, for sure.
0: Oh, me too. It just you know didn't do well enough exactly, but we'll see. We need more Chris Pine.
1: How many times have I got to say it?
0: He was great. Yes. He was great. What's great about him is he doesn't take himself too seriously, at least in the roles he picks. And he's he's willing to play parts that are kind of silly. So, the final film we're going to talk about Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. I'm taking off the part one because they're taking off the part one because part two was supposed to come out.
1: No, part one stays on it. The name of the movie is is Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one. They're removing no, it. N- n- they changed the part two. The part one still is called part one. <laughs> is, what is the part one of if there's no
0: part two? I know. That's why it's crazy. <laughs> so part two was supposed to come out this this coming year, but the strike it's killed that. So they're changing the name of the second one. Anyway. I, I love these crazy, wacky films. Similar to Fast X, this probably wasn't the best one of the series. It wasn't the best one of the modern, and I'm saying modern for Mission Impossible because it started in the 90s, of the Christopher McQuarrie films. This wasn't the best one of them. However... It's still Tom Cruise doing Mission Impossible stuff on the big screen. The whole sequence on the train made me clench up. You know, the whole jumping off the cliff with the motorcycle and parachuting that they spoiled in all the trailers, but was still kind of crazy to watch and unfold in real time. And he's an entertainer and goddamn, he's going to kill himself entertaining us one day, but hasn't happened yet. It's still fun. The cast is still hanging in there. It's always nice to see Ving Rhames still around. They've actually created a nice little ensemble here with Simon Pegg. They added Haley Atwell, Vanessa Kirby, Rebecca Ferguson. They brought back Henry Cizerny, the original guy from the original film. Shea Wiggum's in it. Carrie Elways. They've got a great little group of actors on these films. I really enjoy them. Shea Wiggum gets punched a lot. He's really good at taking He's punches. So good. He's He's great on at screen. getting punched. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, not part one. Just Dead Reckoning. This one, of course, the bad guy was AI. It's just what's going to be an Hollywood from now on out AI villains forever. <laughs> So, those are some of the films we enjoyed, some of our favorite films of the year. There were more films, but those are the ones we enjoyed.
1: Yeah, it's a hard, I mean, I definitely, like, going back to what we said, I definitely think it was a good year for movies. I, you know, found myself in the theater pretty regularly, although not like the good old days, right? Not I think like I 20 like times was. to the theater. Every time it was a good time, and it was h- really hard to nail down, like, this was my favorite movie of the year. If I had to narrow it down, I'm probably narrowed down to The Killer of the Holdovers or Killers of the Flower Moon. Those are kind of in my top three.
0: Yeah, I mean, looking at Barbie, Oppenheimer, Kills of the Fire Moon, the Holdover is my top four. And then I'd probably put Florence Sun as my fifth. So those are my top five. I just got to figure out what order they go in.
1: Yeah. I guess Oppenheimer's in there, I suppose. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, so good. I know this is the thing we beat on as old men, but I really do think the theater experience is unmatched. And yep. I was listening to somebody talk about it today on a podcast, and the shared social experience is really important, I think, as a society. And you can say, okay, it's only been happening for 100 years, but it's been shaping our society for 100 years. It's it's crying yeah. together, it's laughing together, it's tensing up together, it's feeling that emotional release together. It's, it's, it's having it in a, in a room with a bunch of people who you wouldn't normally be in a room with, and sharing a valuable emotional experience. I don't care how good your TV is at home, I don't care how good your sound system is you're still going to look at your phone you're still going to get up and go get food you're still going to get up and go to the bathroom it's not going to be the same and it's unfortunate that we are shifting as a society away from shared experiences to individual solitary experiences and it's probably not good for us as a race of people but here we are
1: Jeez got heavy now <laughs> <laughs>
0: he's, he's getting no, modeling it, in his old age.
1: Given any opportunity to, to watch a movie at home or in the theater, I choose the theater every time. I ended up watching the holdovers at home. And what I do, you know, I put my phone in the other room, right? Mm-hmm. So, not to be distracted in any way, shape, or form. I want to be connected to it, but it can't beat the theater experience as far as I'm
0: concerned. Where's the holdover showing? I
1: rented it. It's on all the platforms. Oh, it's
0: on for rent. Oh, okay. Yeah yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. It's on all
2: the platforms, guys.
0: I mean, TV is great, but there's a reason why we start the show with movies.
1: Totally. There is something special about movies and it's it's actually really interesting how especially when you look at a lot of the companies you know the major media companies or the Disneys and the NBC Universals and all this sort of stuff it's almost like you know they have so many so many things going on in these mega corporations but like we define whether they're doing well or not by their movie success yeah it is such a big portion of entertainment in this country and has been for the last hundred years you know and and right now we're in time of transition and i don't know where it's going to go but i hope it goes in the way that we're used to and excited about but we'll see
0: let's move over to television now the aforementioned television and start with the television disclaimer we each picked five shows that's 15 shows there were approximately seven thousand shows so your favorite may not be on this list. It probably isn't. doesn't mean we didn't like it. and It may mean we didn't watch it, but doesn't mean if we did, we didn't like it. just we had to pick five, and that's where we ended up here. And we were sorry we didn't get to talk about all the shows that we watched this year. We probably could have doubled our number here and still talked about shows we enjoyed this year because there's so many TV shows. But we're going to plow forward and talk about season two of The Bear. Season one of The Bear is probably everyone's favorite show last year. Bear season two was very different than season one, in many ways as good. See, season one is all about the frenetic and intense situation that the main character was going through, trying to keep his brother's restaurant alive and maybe reinvent it. Season two was all about reinventing it, but not in a customer-facing way. So it was more, a little slightly more sedate, but more intense. I thought emotionally, I, thought, I still think about Cousins' episode. Each episode kind of focused on a different character. In Cousins' episode, where he sort of found himself, found his confidence, found his oh, that
1: was the best. That was the best episode of the season. That was yeah, so found good. his purpose I, in
0: life. I, I just I wear loved suits that. now. Yeah, that was so good. That was one of the best episodes of TV
2: that I've seen in a long time. Hands down.
1: Great use of a cameo. Yes. And also just like
2: one of those things where you watch somebody go through a positive change. It's a character who had like almost no redeeming values to a certain extent. He was, you know, like he loved his cousin. That's about it, you know? And then you watch this and you expect, you know, the the thing you normally see is still, you're going to watch him fail or something because anything can happen on this show. But instead you watch him get it and it transforms him.
0: And like, that's so redemptive. He's a man who had nothing. And he found something to have. He found something that he could do that he was good at. And everyone talks about the family Christmas dinner episode. Yep, and it was a great episode. But I, to me, the best episode—I'm still stressed out about that. Yeah, the best episode is still cousin's episode.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the best episode was cousin's episode. But the Christmas episode, just because it like it came at a breathing point in the season halfway through the extended runtime of the episode, and just the relentless stress of the episode, like mm-hmm. it, like it, it definitely is important and was a moment of the season for sure, like a high moment. But yeah, but the cousin bottle episode was just so good. It was just like oh, it it's great. And ultimately, the whole season as itself i feel like the first season was so fantastic and so unique and so fresh or whatever but I almost feel like it was like precursor to this season yeah like this feels like what the show's really about mm-hmm. right oh sure
0: yeah well you we don't even know what comes next or when you know so right. maybe he never yeah. makes it out of that locker <laughs> and that was crushing
1: that the method oh, yeah. is
2: like mm-hmm. it, you have you're gonna have to marry this life and it sucks and you no. can't not do it and that is fascinating that's really well done what more can be said about perry mason HBO's We're fucking pissed. That's what that's yeah. the word to say. The high end, you say a lot
1: about it. <laughs> high
2: dollar. Not necessarily superstar laden, but just amazing actor laden shows. Takes place in 30s, 40s, Los Angeles. Very little to do with the television show Perry Mason that we, that many of us knew as kids. Just thoughtful, smart, dramatic, exciting, beautiful TV. Matthew Reese is he's my favorite actor right now. And so to watch him you know, be there and make his sad face. God, it just kills me. Yeah, I'm not surprised
0: that it didn't really catch on. It was nice of HBO to make a show for three people. Yeah, it's almost like a charity job for them. They're like, these My three wife guys. Loved it. Who That's have this four podcast, people. That's true. Let's say six to seven yeah. people. Yeah,
2: but I mean, I, I loved it so much, and I, I, you know, the first time through watching that first season, you know, it was like this is amazing, being so excited. Then finally, the second one episode, and then that crushing realization that this is all you're gonna get, right? And being like, all right. I guess I'll enjoy the hell out of it. Now, there's other shows that you find out they're not going to go, and I've stopped watching them. But like this, I ate up every single little moment. It is a delightful little gem. Kind of a cliffhanger. But that also makes sense to me. Like if you're talking about a a show like that, you almost want to end it on a cliffhanger, even if you're not going to tell it. Just to know, Mm -hmm. hey, there's something else coming. Something else happens. You're going to have to tell that story in your own head, though.
0: Yeah, it was so good. It was my favorite thing that HBO did in a while. Mm
1: -hmm. It's such a bummer that we're not going to get more What I loved about Perry Mason was just getting lost In the time period Mm -hmm. and the location And
0: just the mood of it And the powerhouse acting yeah, oh my god! Yeah. They had so many great character actors on that show.
1: It's the same reason why, and it's not on this list. But Connor, I feel like The Gilded Age could
0: be on this list for sure, both of us, you know, for
1: all of us. I think sure. because again, it's like for an hour you get lost in the mood of the time period, right? Like the, uh, that, and it's the most yeah. low
0: stakes show on TV that I need. I need a low stakes oh, show,
1: right? But also, so that's good. really
2: that's an elevated sort of dramatic port. Like I don't know, it's, they're not similar to me in that way. I get by with it either way or another. But I also think that like Matthew Reese, he excels in being in a series. He's a fantastic actor. You can put him in a movie. All of that's fine. But if you get to watch him own a character over a long period of time.
1: The more tortured, the better.
2: Oh, that I mean, that's the thing. And you get to see him be happy for a little bit, and then someone beats the shit out of him, and then it's him and Shea Wiggum hitting each other, which, well, I mean, those that are that two punchable
1: motherfuckers. More Shea Wiggum getting punched.
2: That sad fight on the
0: bridge, yeah. And normally, his character doing it to himself. It was just and you knew thing.
2: And you were rewarded that at the end of that fight, you were going to see the two of them sitting on a curb sharing a drink. And that's what you <laughs> oh, got. Man. It's so good. Yeah. Are you going to find <laughs> sure. love with a pretty lady? It is not going to work out.
0: You're going to sabotage it. Yes, you are. Oh. oh, that was Sam Waterston's
2: daughter. Yes, it was. There's yeah. a lot of that going on these days. Well, that's how Hollywood works. It was a family business. Sure.
1: Um, oh, she was also in the Steve Jobs, Michael Fassbender movie. I spent half of the of Perry Mason season trying to figure out who she was, at least how, where I knew her from, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, that's where she was." Do you do that manually?
2: You don't go to IMDb? Yes, I
1: do. I don't. I try not to look it up at IMDb. <laughs> I
2: won't do it during the show, right? Unless I can't focus. Right. You know what I mean? If it's, it's taking so away from it, right? yeah, yeah. And because nothing like that relax of, Oh, and then you can be, <laughs> then you can move along.
1: Well, for me, probably my top show of the year, the one that delivered the most and surprised the most and, and got the most enjoyment was earlier in 2023. Probably, I would say, I don't, I don't know if it's the lone hit, but the one of the only hits from the Peacock streaming service, Poker Face, starring Natasha Leone. This show just was, again, like, talk about, like, you know, taking an hour to go somewhere else and to, you know, to kind of get lost, you know, the skepticism kind show. of aspect
2: of it. No. Oh. No, that was Russian Dolls. I got it. Okay. That was a Russian yeah. Doll.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah. Sorry. I love the episodic nature of it that every episode was its own self-contained mystery that Natasha Lyonne's character was going to solve, be it a murder mystery or, or whatever the crime that is that is being you know kind of in Columbo kind of way, but still having an overarching theme throughout the season of her being on the run and the guy who she's on the run from which we do get a satisfying result at the end of the season, it just harkened back to a type of TV that they don't make anymore or don't make that much anymore. I
2: think we've got our theme for the show this year. Yeah, we do.
1: I, I think you really do, yeah, I know, which just makes me feel feel very old and tired and but it was just it was just it was so it was so somewhat refreshing in that way and it was the kind of thing where like we slow paced out watching it because we didn't want it to be over that quickly right like mm-hmm. we, we it, they released the first three episodes then it was weekly and we watched it weekly because we wanted to stretch it out and have that bit of enjoyment you know the premise being Latasha Leon's character has a innate sixth sense of when people are lying wait are they doing our bit you can't give people powers <sighs> and that both gets her you know a good one she benefits from it but it also gets her in a lot of trouble and, and how that all how plays out and each episode she's on the run from somebody who, who she, you know who she got mixed up with and so each episode carried through her character and her character's point of view but each episode was fresh and different took place in a different part of the country you know you spent half the episode trying to figure out what's going on and who the players are and what's the story and then and then it hits the gas and you see it resolve and you see her solve the mystery or whatever and then move on. Just so much fun. I can't recommend Poker Face more. It was was just totally delightful.
0: This year we saw the final season of Reservation Dogs, one of my favorite shows on television, on Hulu, about kids living on a reservation in Oklahoma trying to figure out their life in the face of tragedy and generational trauma and all the things that the Native tribes go through. This season, at first, everyone was very separated. The characters were all together. In season two, they sort of separated at the end. This season took a while to get them back together, and that was for, at first frustrating, but they allowed every episode to sort of drill down on their characters, their place in the community, and their worlds. And by the end, it was just so emotionally impactful. By the end, you, it was all sort of came together. A wonderful cast of actors, people like Wes Studi got to come in and do very off-brand roles. His character was very funny.
2: What did I just see him in? Where he was like a lawyer or something, oh, I, f- I forget, but I thought, oh,
0: that's a really interesting role for him. Anyway, so. He's a great actor. Lily Gladstone from Kills of the Far Moon has a small but pivotal role in the show. Zon McLaren, who was in many things, including Susan of Fargo, and he's the lead in Dark Winds. He plays a very different kind of Navajo cop, not Navajo, he's a Navajo cop on Dark Winds, tribal cop on this show than he does play on Dark Winds. is He's sort of the comic relief. Great characters, great actors. Who don't often get to play roles like this? There's a couple of devastating episodes. The whole episode that was dealing with the generational trauma of the forced schooling that happened, where they t- took the kids away from their parents and tried to make them into Americans, um, that was a rough episode. But at, at the end of every, at the end of everyone, there was a hopefulness. There was a real sense of community and just really great. You know, we've it's a mini explosion of uh, Native-focused shows and movies in the last couple of years, and it's been really uh, heartening to see a lot of these actors to show what they can do. And not just the actors, but the uh, writers and directors. Sterling Harjo was the voice behind this series. And it's just wonderful, really wonderful show.
1: I've heard nothing but good things. We watched the first episode and haven't continued past that, but not for lack of like it not being good. Yeah. Just, you know, for you know, just three so.
0: seasons and they're, they're half hour episodes. So it's it's yeah. not a, a huge time commitment. 27 are episodes, I think, total. So it's not... Uh... The main guy, Bear, played by DeFero Wu Natai, he's really... Really charismatic and compelling actor. I could see him going places. And also, I just want to mention that the sort of the main female lead, Daveri Jacobs, she's a really accomplished filmmaker. She wrote and directed one of the best episodes of the season, which included a very big celebrity guest appearance, which was shocking and did not leak out and almost knocked us off the couch. It was very good.
2: I did not plan or want to watch The Last of Us. Ditto. <laughs> a genre show about more or less zombies adapted from a video game plot, which I understand by the way, without being an asshole. Very good video game.
1: It's also the future, apparently. You see the Fallout video, yep. the Fallout trailer. Yeah, like Walton uh... Goggins. Yep. This is one
2: of those, this, is, this happened first with Lost, where Lindsay's like, I'm going to watch this. And I was like, I don't want to watch that. And then I was like, fine, I'll sit down. Because she was like, I want to watch a thing with you, because I think we would enjoy it. And directed, produced, um, the showrunner by um, Craig, help me. Mason. Greg Mason of, uh, I'm primarily thinking of Chernobyl, which was just excellent.
0: And to be fair, he's co shorting with the creative director of the game, which I think is very important to why it was so successful. Yeah. I don't disagree with you, but I don't know that no, I, I think can speak to it. I think the TV guy, but I think having the guy behind the game right. keeps it authentic. I think it's authentic and
2: that maybe matters to people the game. I don't know if it makes the show better, but it very well might. It probably does. Because as I understand it, it's very true to the game, at yeah. least the cutscenes. Yeah. Anyway, the point being, I got into it. I got real into it. The zombies, the monsters, creep me out. I do not like them, which is what is supposed to happen. (laughs) You know, Pedro Pascal is is undeniable as a person to watch. I originally know him from Narcos long ago, and I have watched him sort of get to be a bigger and bigger deal. Most people probably first came across him uh, in The Mandalorian, where he does a hell of a lot with just his voice. But, you know, but in this show, to watch him... He's so good on it. He's so good. And also like every clip of you see of him in real life, you're like, What a fucking goofball. And then he can go and play that. A lot like Matthew Reese, really. Yep. Yep. You know, Bella I was gonna say. Yeah. Who had a smallish part, but very memorable part in Game of Thrones. You know, really great relationship with them. It ends up being an incredibly intelligent, incredibly thoughtful show, but is also very visceral. And then, you know, again, we're talking about single episodes, you know, the Nick Offerman episode.
0: Well, that was the one, right? I mean, like, my thought going into that episode was, I'm giving this one more. Right. Because the first episode I really liked, the second one I liked less, is more about sort of the zombies. And the first episode was all about that Really masterful, creepy way they introduced the the chaos to the world. The second episode was like it felt more like a standard zombie show, and I was like, "Eh, Mm -hmm. hmm." I was like, I'll give them one more week, and then the third episode comes in, blows your brain out of the back of your skull, and I was in after that for the rest of the season.
1: That was the only episode of the show I watched.
0: It was amazing. (laughs) it give you what you'd expect, but not out of this show. You know what I mean? It also like, show it, the possibilities of the show, right? It yeah. didn't have to be about the main characters. It yeah. didn't have to be about yeah. the conflict. It could be about anything. You know,
2: beautifully acted, written, directed, that bit. But, the, you know, the rest of the show was good. I don't mean to... No, no I, I love the rest of it. It reminds me a lot of, you know, there was that one episode of Mythic Quest. Right. You know, in that first yep. season. And I don't know who did this before that, but they, to me, are the sort of modern... Progenitor of that kind of deal, and then I think the Bears done it a couple times. So that's become like a TV thing: is to be like do one of those episodes,
1: yeah, a side story to take you out of the main story, but to
2: show you what they can do. Oh God, so good. Anyway, you know, great show. I was a thousand percent into it. It was the best possible version of this kind of story that I think you can do, and you know, there's so much that has to do with the talent involved. But uh, yep. it was it was a really nice surprise. I'd take Barry Mason over it any day of the fucking week, though. <laughs> Okay. Okay, it's not a competition. It is. It's HBO. It's not TV.
1: Talking about a nice surprise. Um, I I stumbled on on Paramount Plus a joint production between Paramount Plus and the BBC, a show called The Gold. Mm. Which after I watched the first episode, I was like why did I discover this and not Josh O'Connor? Because this seems like way up more their alleys than up my alley. You're not wrong. Yeah, this is a fantastic crime drama that tells the story of a robbery in England in the early 1980s, where uh, a handful of robbers go to attempt to steal some currency that is being transferred at Heathrow, very similar to the Goodfellas uh, Air France Hall, where they know that overnight, like bags of money are being stored to be sent back to the country where they came from. And instead, they break in... And instead of finding the money, they actually, in the same storage unit, is three tons of gold bullion, which they then steal. I hate when that happens. So the robbery happens in the first episode, spoiler. But the series is not about the robbery. The series is about everything that happens after the robbery, right? Because once you've stolen three tons of gold bullion, you can't just go and sell it. It's how do you convert that into money that you can actually get and money laundering and, and right. all the mechanics of that and stuff like that. And what the gold becomes is the gold becomes kind of threefold of a TV series series and that one it's the police unit investigating the crime it's the criminals trying to get away with the crime. And then at the same time, it is a commentary on class in England in the 80s right. with New Order as the soundtrack. It was just like, uh, you know, like, it was just, it was fantastic. Did you
0: know New Order would be the soundtrack or was that just a happy coincidence?
1: That was a happy coincidence. I mean, that was, I didn't know anything about the show. and, it, and It's contemporaneous. I think it was the second episode and the, the whole first scene was set to New Order. And I was like, oh, right. But it's got the main guy, I think was in Downton Abbey, right? The, yes, yes. Um, Hugh Bonneville. Huge Bonneville.
0: Huge Bonneville. Hugh Bonneville, Hugh, yeah. the main cop, was not nappy. Right. Yes, yes, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Hugh Bonneville is the main cop from, um, uh, and he and he's fantastic. And then the main kind of criminal, Slow you know, Slow kind horses, of guy yeah. is Jack Loudon from Slow Horses, yeah. which is not on this list. But I just want to go ahead and say shout out. It's the fucking best. I'm hearing good things about season three. I might start watching it. You, oh my Slow god, good. I'm but, halfway yeah. through it and it's terrific. So I'm going to tell
2: you a thing right now. You would love it. Gary Oldman eating noodles. That's all you need to know.
1: That's great. Okay, cool. No, you don't know. But anyway, also Dominic Cooper, who who, who was in Preacher and uh, played Howard Stark in the early MCU days. It was just all in all just a, a complete, you know, just like surprising delight. And I love you know the fact that it's based on reality, based on something that truly happened, and told in a a very engaging kind of way in each episode. And it, it was short. I mean, it's only like a five or six episodes. Um, and each episode was so well crafted. Um and I'm delighted to hear that it was renewed it's gonna get a second season, which I figured out how that happens, but I don't but it's a spoiler, so I won't say anything.
0: After you talked about our media split, I watched half of the first episode. Yep. And in the middle of it, when well, my wife who was out of town that weekend, which is what I was watching because I figured she wouldn't want to watch it, called to say she was listening to the Media split, and she really wanted to watch the gold, so I had to stop it. You didn't have to. Well I, I, I winced and I hit pause and I stopped it. Holiday break is coming and I always go to my mom's house and we always watch a couple of shows. and She loves British shows, so we're going to watch The Gold over the break. A couple of things
2: is that I've already done Revisionist History in my head and Connor was the one who suggested it.
0: I I cannot believe that Ron was
2: the one who did it. It was Ron. (laughs) It's so strange. It doesn't make any sense. It makes none. In fact, I've forgotten since I've said this that I was like, so when Connor said (laughs) no. (laughs) Your brain won't accept it. I have just been given leave to watch the program on my own. Oh. Oh, good. I think I'm halfway through the second episode and it's been a difficult one to... Convinced that hey let's watch this thing that you have to pay a lot of attention to and listen to the accents and do the whole thing when you're very tired at night so I've
0: been given leave to watch it on my own and I will be doing that soon we can all come in right after the holidays about the cold Mm -hmm. pop quiz guys who is the longest serving original character on streaming I don't understand the question Hieronymus Bosch oh (laughs) Oh, god next year will be his 10th season jeez
1: I don't know, a single person who watches it other than you. It's fine. I don't <laughs> care.
0: It it <laughs> in a world I think my dad watched. Actually, I think my dad watches I it. I would love to watch it with your dad. In a world <laughs> where shows no matter how popular go maybe 3 seasons if you're lucky. Bosch is on its second series. It's 10th total season on Prime. Now it's on freebie, but I still watch it on my Prime app. I don't know how that works other than there are ads on it, but there's going to be ads on everything. (laughs) It's an LA cop show. It's one of those shows based on, it's like Slow Horses, Josh. It's based on a novel series. It takes place in LA. It's full of terrific actors, a lot of them from The Wire. Each season is like two or three interlocking stories from the books that come together in various interesting ways. And for some reason, I think it's probably to do with there's all kinds of reasons why shows get canceled, and, and sometimes things like there's like escalator clauses in contracts where they you have to pay the actors more and more and more unless it's a new series. It used to be Bosch, not Bosch Legacy, which is what I'm talking about. Where at the end of the series, they had Bosch quit the force. He was a homicide detective in L- at LAPD. Now he's a private detective working for the lawyer from the first show, and his daughter's now a rookie cop. And so it's basically the same show. They just moved the pieces around. They got rid of some of the actors, although every major actor from the first series came back for at least one episode, including Lance Reddick, who was a major character in the first season. Now he just came back for isn't, one episode. Isn't um, isn't Marlo Stanfield in that show? He was his partner in the original series. Okay. He came back for one episode for Bosch Legacy, but he was okay. a partner. But they are working on two Bosch spinoffs, one of which would feature him as the lead. So they're making a whole Bosch shared universe. That's how popular the show is. How does he not play the most evil person ever? He's really good. I have no doubt it, but he's so fully formed as evil. It took me a while, honestly, to yeah. look past Marlo in the beginning when he was on the show because he's so good in that role. But eventually, you know, you forget about it. But they're literally creating a bosch universe. They're working on two spinoffs. Bosch-verse? The Bosch-verse. And the I'm Bosch-verse. In, I'm into it.
2: All right, fair enough.
0: It's ridiculous. It's fun. It's a very good cop based on a novel show. Those stuff have a different feel than regular cop shows. It's more novelistic. I really like it.
2: Just to close the loop here, it turns out that I have mixed up West Studi and uh, Zach McLaren who played a lawyer in uh, No Hard Feelings.
0: No Hard Feelings, yes.
2: If it occurred to me that Wes Duty must be old now, I would know that wasn't old. him. He's very good. No, absolutely. They're both, yeah. they're both in Reservation Dogs. It made it harder to research.
0: They both are in hard. Reservation Dogs, yeah.
2: Justified City Primeval. I got through this again. I had leave to do it on my own and then I I plowed through this show. It is Return to Justified, Raylan Givens. Nobody from the previous series is in this one. Raylan finds himself in Detroit mixed up with a bunch of criminal stuff and, you know, an arch enemy, you know, a, a psychopathic killer guy who was also in Narcos.
0: And he was in
2: Indiana Jones. Yeah, but he was in Narcos. I'm just saying, he was in... in he the, he was well. the Ray Liotta. He was the Henry Hill of Narcos for a while. Yes, he was great in Narcos. It's true. I think this series was not at all up to the snuff of the old show. But at the same time, you know, you, you know, you talk about I'd pay to watch Raylan Gibbons read the phone book, and I would. Yeah. I can find a lot of faults with the show. I thought the villain was very good. Besides that, I think it was largely unmemorable, except they say you can't go home, but I was very happy to spend time with Raylan Gibbons again. And that really carried me through. I never got bored. I always wanted to know, you know, I always wanted to watch the next episode. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And that is just because of the, you know, the charisma of Timothy Oliphant in a way, but also him playing that character and watching him play yeah. that character as a slightly older person in a different setting. You know, he thought it was out, but they sucked him back in. You know, and, and sort of how it ends. I, I don't know if it was a great ending, but as a coda to a thing, as a little bit of extra, I will take it. I was really happy with it. It was bad. Be- I was a little worried, you know, uh, but it didn't matter. In the yeah.
0: End. That was also based on a novel. Yeah. It was based on a Elmar Leonard book that did yeah. not feature Raylan Givens, but they squished him into the role. And they gave their character from the book a cameo. He was the guy at the bar, the ex-cop he met. Mm. Um, they At least they threw him a bone, even though he wasn't the lead. Yep. Old, Old Fence, the best. Yep. And his daughter was in it, too. She wasn't great, but whatever.
1: So one of the reasons why I have Paramount Plus as a streaming service is because as as Connor and I uh, share this love of the Star Trek brand, the Star Trek universe
0: and the Good Wife universe. That's why we have it. And the Good Wife,
1: yeah, for sure the good, the Good Fight. No, but the fact that there's been a steady stream of new Star Trek content produced and released is is a joy because Star Trek is a I wouldn't even you know, I wouldn't call it a guilty pleasure, it's just a straight up pleasure that I've enjoyed since I was a kid. And I feel like in past years we've talked about Star Trek Discovery and, and Picard in which I think you're going to talk about next Connor. Yeah, But there was the one outlier, at least for me over the past couple of years, which was Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I did not watch the first season when it came out. And for those who don't know, Star Trek Strange New Worlds is a series telling the story of the Enterprise as captain by Pike, who was the captain before Kirk. Right. So this is pre Star Trek, the original series. You have a young Spock, you have Captain Pike and the Captain's Chair, a whole different crew, but it's the same enterprise that we know and love. And for some reason, when it first came out, I just kind of went, Oh, I don't want a prequel and blah, 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 like all that kind of baggage. And then this year rolled around and, you know, we had a lull in stuff to watch. And I knew that Star Trek Strange New World season two was starting up. So I was like, All right, let's dive in. Let's watch season one. And then we can go right into season two. And within. Three episodes, both me and my wife were like, this might be one of the best shows on TV, like period. It is so well done and so fantastic, and season two built on what they did in season one in such a way it really feels like a modern interpretation of the Star Trek: The Original Series, you know, wagon train to the stars feeling, you know, which is a different feeling than the other Star Trek shows that are currently, you know, whether it's Discovery or Picard or the other ones, Lower Decks. This is as as akin to the original Kirk Spock Bones stories of the '60s, and they're weaving it in such a way that it's all in the same universe. There are ties to the Star Trek the original series. There are dotted lines to Star Trek the original series episodes but not in a fan service. You know, Josh, you know, kind of roll your eyes, bang your head on the table like trying too hard kind of way. It's done very cleverly, very smartly and, you know, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, I can't wait for the next season. This is a a wonderful surprise for me, although I shouldn't be because I do like Star Trek. It definitely delivered in a way that I didn't expect.
0: I don't even know if Star Trek Picard is good. Season three, (laughs) I think it was. I have no objective relationship to it it was a full reunion of the original next generation cast they got to play together one more time and i loved every minute of it i think it was good but it doesn't matter
1: every minute was fantastic it doesn't matter yeah, if it was great.
0: good yeah. or not i enjoyed it the original series ended really well it has one of the great final episodes
1: with the next generation yeah
0: so we didn't need to bring them back to like justify anything or to like make up for something so we didn't need it but they got to play these characters many decades on They're all slightly different, but they're all still the same in the important ways. And they got to have one important, crazy adventure together. And it also sort of served as a coda, an ending to the original continuity. You know, that, that world of Star Trek that started in the 60s with Shatner and Nemo and DeForest Kelly and everybody else and went through decades of movies and TV shows and is now it sort of ended with Picard because they have this new Discovery universe, including Strange New World. But the final season of Picard featured stuff from the original series, it had Chekhov, and it featured little shout-outs or nods to all the series that have come before. It was a story that enveloped the entire sort of history of the Federation, and so it allowed them to do all those things. And it felt like a really nice, sad, not sad because it, of the story, but sad for me, like the ending of this thing that's been very important to me in terms of, you know, I've been a Star Trek I'm not a fanatic, but I've been a Star Trek fan my entire life, watching all the shows, not all the shows, i never watched Enterprise, but all the films, I've watched them over and over again. So that ending was very emotional, and the fact that they got to have that moment, and not to spoil it, but the fact that they all got to have that sort of final scene together, hanging out, just being friends again. It was just wonderful. It was just really wonderful to see all those actors together. They all they all still like each other. You can see it. You can see yeah, it. Yeah, imp- I mean, and there's on a the bo- there's a
1: bond there for sure. And and the series wasn't done in a way to just as an excuse no. for them to all get together. It still told a important chapter of this ongoing you know tapestry and and continued the story arcs of these characters you know into their later years. It definitely wasn't you know like it, it wasn't indulgent in any way. No. Like, everything felt that it had proper value.
0: Yeah, I mean, season two had problems. I still enjoyed. Watching season one, I thought was terrific. One and three, it felt like a nice send off for Patrick Stewart's Picard character. Yep. You know, when they first announced it, I think Ron and I were both like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. But it ended up being worthwhile, and this final season really was. There was a couple of episodes that were terrific. Yep. There was one I'm thinking of in the very beginning. I can't remember the details of it, Ron, but they were like stuck in that nebula because it's Star Trek.
1: Oh yeah, that whole mini story arc within it was fantastic, and with, with the actual ship fighting stuff. You oh, know? and the yeah. captain, yeah. the captain yeah.
0: character. One of the best yeah. characters in recent Star Trek where he starts off as loathsome and hateful and in the best possible way has an arc of redemption to the point where he ends up saving everyone. Uh, I yeah, just Comic-Con's
1: love Comic-Con's on Todd Sashwick.
0: It was, I thought, a wonderful season and a nice send-off to that show, those characters, that cast, but also this world that Roddenberry created in the 60s that lasted up until 2023. It's still lasting. Yeah, but it's not really. Okay. But that's you and I's difference of opinion. I but think that's it's okay. pretty amazing that there are. I feel like there's a lot of Star Trek
2: shows still to this there's day. Is, a, there's, yeah, there's an animated lot, series. Man. There's all kinds. Of- it's being supported. I mean, pr- they wouldn't keep making them. You know, that's pretty fascinating yeah. to me. Fascinating. <laughs> I, got fascinating
0: yeah. I got that. I got that. Well, you have your own side to talk about now.
2: For All Mankind. I don't know if people like this or talk about it or whatever. But uh, we're talking about an alternate history of the space race. The fourth season. Yes, is in process right now, and I am enjoying it. Every season is 10 years after the one that came before it. So the very first episode starts with learning that Neil Armstrong was not the first person on the moon and said it was a Russian, and it goes from there. There are many real characters, although at this point, it's not too many actual people who you know real people represented by characters on the show but having been in so long you have a relationship with all these people it's just super dramatic and also melodramatic and and fun and it's gotten a little bit wacky in some ways and uh, it is, is one of my favorite shows on tv
0: how has it changed in season one other than you know the time the characters is it has it changed We're in an alternate history kind of thing. So
2: there's a lot of like, we're right now we're in... I
0: mean, is the tone changed as the sort of...
2: No, but, you know, at first you're watching it adhere to real history to a certain extent. And then you see how those things change. And there was a lot of sort of fun in those reveals. And that's kind of past now. And so the stories that are going on, you'll see it interact with the real world. But there's some really sort of intelligent things that are going on where... No, the space technology in this show is far beyond what our space technology on. So we're in the like we're in the early two thousands, I think, at this point. Smartphones don't exist yet, but they have colonies on Mars. You know, but there's still a Soviet Union, and so it's much more speculative now based on mm-hmm. their timeline. But it's re- like there's a lot of really subtle things that I think are very thoughtful. Now this is from Ronald D Moore and others, but he's one of the sh- main showrunners who did you know, the excellent, excellent Battlestar Galactica show. And it feels like that. It feels like that kind of drama and those kind of stakes with, a, a again, an ensemble cast and a bunch of characters who you're spending time with. It's like, I don't think it's a cheap show, but it kind of has a little bit of that feeling of like a sci-fi show, like a sci-fi network show, mm. where it's like not quite network money being thrown at it, but in a way right. that works for it. But Battlestar Galactica, again, was like that. It was like, this is a little cheap. But in such a way that it really lets sort of the acting and the story stand out in a way because, you know, production is not
0: bad at all. But it's still a little Can bit Can I make a comment about that? Yeah. This may be my old age talking, but i have coming around to the idea that it doesn't matter to me anymore if a show looks cheap. Because ultimately, yeah. these are fancy plays being put on. Exactly. That's the thing. We don't go to yeah. a show at Broadway and say, well, this looks fake because it's not about that. Right. I mean, yeah, I, you want it to look nice and everything, but to me, ultimately, it's like if the story's good and you, you're believing the world, I don't necessarily mind if the special effects are not up to par or whatever. Like Anyone who's watched classic British TV, you know, any kind of drama. I'm not for, for that. I'm here for the story, and the character. Yeah. So, for me, it's like I'm watching a really fancy play being put on. If I can see the sets, who cares? It's not about yeah. that. It's just a great, smart, fun
2: show, and I, I'm really surprised it's still coming out. Like, I'm shocked, but I'll take it.
1: What is it? It's four, season yeah. four now? that's crazy it's a, I'm, yeah, I'm still cracking up there was a throwaway joke on John Oliver about Apple TV Plus where it's Apple TV Plus where where stars go to hide right <laughs> it's yeah. just like they're just quietly all these shows that are just persisting and you don't even like I know for all mankind existed it, four seasons there's baffling. no stars in it, it, it though it feels like it just came out like so, Joel yeah. Kinnaman <laughs> is the biggest
2: star in it like it's not yeah. that it's an ensemble it's like Battlestar Galactic there were no yeah. you know the, Edward James Almost was the biggest star in that Who you know who cares yeah Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Are you slacking <laughs> off Edward James. Almost? I am not. I'm saying that he was not a necessarily a big box office
0: draw in 2004 or whenever that don't show started. Don't make him started. not look at you on set. <sighs> Ron, I'm really excited for you to talk about this next one.
1: Well, yeah. So it's, it's funny because it's like, I, the, you guys who know me and know how much I watch TV, I don't, you know, and it's ironic that, you know, the, my last two shows I'm talking about here fall in this category, but I don't generally fall for the reality TV genre.
0: I don't think this is a reality TV show.
1: Uh, I mean, it, it definitely, if it, it falls you know in what? there. It falls into it that into
0: the premise.
2: I think it is because one of them was not aware. And right. that right. was right. real right. acting. I, I know, but I didn't. I didn't believe the entire time. Let's let Ron talk about it. Anyway,
1: yeah. So I'll give all due credit to my sister, who has much different TV watching tendencies than I do. Who told me over the summer, it's like you got to check out the show Jury Duty. It's hysterical. And I was like, well, what? What do you mean? And she went on to further explain that you know the premise of this reality show is that they you know built a fake courtroom and fake documentary being produced about the judicial process in order to pick one subject who's not aware that it's fake and have him go through this crazy jury duty process in LA um, that included James Marsden as being one of the members on the jury or the or an alternate on the jury and you know see what they can throw at him to see if they can get him the break or not. And through some magic chemistry or whatever by finding the right subject this guy that they got this guy ronald Gladden, they got so
0: lucky that they, they got, got so
1: lucky with him with his, the way he the, his approach to it all the other actors who surrounded him who were playing jurors playing their role and just the entire creation of a universe of this courtroom that doesn't exist was just enthralling and fascinating so much so that every episode had its, you know, it's a half hour reality show. So it has, you know, there there are moments that are, you know, it's, it's being done in the faux kind of docu-series kind of manner. But, you know, they're high points of like high comedy or very funny stuff. But the fact that the last episode was spent on the reveal and then them showing him how they did it. Just showed how much l- there was layering to this show. And it was really something special. It was a real, I think, moment in time for TV in terms of like a concept and then the execution of that
0: concept. What they did was incredibly hard. And I think people don't yeah. necessarily understand it, especially for the actors That's- who basically had to improv 24 yep. 7 in these characters.
1: And they had to keep this guy Ronald convinced that they couldn't get too weird. So, like one of the things that, like, as they're in the last episode, as they're explaining it, they said, "Yeah, you're seeing a couple of minutes of something really crazy that's funny or whatever," and to counterbalance that. And I heard podcast interviews with yeah. the creators and the writers, stuff like that. They said they had to build what they called the reality bank, where yeah. they would just they would spend six hours of legal procedure boring being on a jury legal stuff to convince this guy that what they were watching was and real. That's all improv. Yeah, I saw yeah, Mars Lahan so
0: Colbert say that. He said anytime he got too suspicious they would do like four hours of boring courtroom stuff and that was difficult. Yeah. But I mean, the guy who played the juror who was cyborg, yeah. like, that guy's a genius. <laughs> Yeah, he was great. The, like yep. the the people who were improvising this were really good at it and they weren't big stars. The only one where I thought and that's because I watched too much TV. Where I thought it was, they got too close to the sun. Was one of the jurors, Kirk Fox, I've guy seen it on several shows. It was it one of those that guy? They
1: said they, they were afraid that he'd get, he was on Parks and Rec. They're afraid that he'd recognize him. He was on right? Parks and Rec. Yeah. He's also
0: on yeah. Reservation Dogs. I was like, oh yeah. no, if I'd been the guy, I would have immediately been like, hey, aren't you on? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Mar- I thought Marsden was terrific. The judge, Alan Barnholtz, who was Ike Barnholtz's dad, was really good. Everyone was really good. And I think I was just really, imp- I mean, it was heartwarming and funny, but I just really impressed that they pulled it off because it's so hard. The production team worked really hard. The actors worked really hard and they just got super lucky that this dude was maybe the nicest person in LA County.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: He was so accepting and so patient with these lunatics around him and you kept waiting for him to do something horrible and he just never the most horrible thing he ever did was just make fun of James Marsden's films to his face that was it
1: right it was just great and Marsden was great too Marsden, Marsden was, was like amazing. playing a version of himself and it was just like oh it was like I, seriously it, it's on Amazon's free uh, fast services uh, free freebie. freebie right so you can watch it with a couple commercials like we not only we watched every episode mm-hmm. including the last episode of the reveal and we watched the cast commentary over the episodes that's how enthralled we were by it like it, it was so good it so. was
0: one of the shows yeah. of the year in terms of A buzz. It was another. This was again. This was a TikTok phenomenon that brought the show into prominence because it was out for a while before it blew up. Yeah, so good. So another final season was billions. Probably the most unsung show of the peak TV era, which is now over. This was the final season. This includes several people we've talked about, including Paul Giamatti, Damian Lewis, who was the co lead. Came back. He had left the show after his wife died tragically of cancer. So he'd left the show a couple seasons ago. But he came back this season to take down the new bad guy in the show, played by Corey Stoll. And he played a bad a, guy, Corey of, Stoll? <laughs> and this was one of those shows, shot in New York, full of great New York actors. And I really loved it. I loved it all the way through. This is one of my favorite shows when it was on. What was really funny, though, was you get to the end, the final episode. It's not really a spoiler to say. They figured out a way to make it a happy ending for all the people who are the protagonists. And it's a show about hedge fund people and government people trying to rein them in. And at the end, one group of hedge fund people beats the other group of hedge fund people. And they're all cheering because they just made a ton of money. And I was like, am I supposed to be happy that these psychopaths are now super rich? Like, there's a moment where I was the confluence of the show's moral arc hit against the reality moral arc. And I was like, hmm, I don't think I can feel good about this, even though I like a lot of these characters. But really well done show. The acting was off the charts. When it was Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis butting heads in sort of the Shakespearean drama. It was just amazing. Harvey
2: Car versus Captain Winters.
0: It really was. It was underrated because it was on Showtime. Not a lot of people have Showtime. It came on during that period where Showtime was starting to get buzzed with Homeland and a couple other shows and then sort of died away. But it lasted for seven, six, seven seasons, I think. And uh, I think they were all really terrific. It was a great love letter to New York as well. Hijack is a British drama. People
2: get on a plane in I want to say the Middle East, but no, I don't quite remember. Turkey, something. Among the passengers is Idris Elba, who it turns out is a high stakes corporate negotiator. Of course, there's some very bad people. Then there's uh, I don't, not a lot of episodes. I want to say seven, maybe eight. Is there a hijack? Yeah, there's a hijack. I thought that was yeah. I thought that was self explanatory, but there well, you know, so make, is make it a hijack. It's just it's just a little silly, but played ramrod straight. Great British villains, you know, all the different types of people who you expect on on a plane. You know, it's funny how close like something like this can be to an airplane movie. If they had just done it this way a little bit, it'd be very silly. But they did it this way the other way, right. so it's dramatic. And it's funny because at first I was like, I don't know. I don't know. This might be just a little over the top. And then I'd be like, when's the next one out? And then by the end, I was like, I got to see how it ends. Just, a, you know, like a little treat not too heavy, but it's nice and dramatic. Idris Elba is—he's good enough to anchor pretty much anything, you know. And it's a British drama, a suspense show, so that's going to have. Is, is this going. like
0: a subgenre of your like disaster movie? And I'm—I'm I'm not calling you out. I think I'm, I love these movies too. But do you find the same kind of satisfaction as a disaster movie, or is there's a villain? No, this is
2: different because this is people against people, sort of plotting mm-hmm. and trying to outsmart each other, and, and it has to do with the nemesis here. The uh, antagonist is greed to a certain extent. No, 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 no. Natural yes. disaster, the antagonizing agent, is just nature. And nature can't right. be good or evil. It just is. I see. You see. It's just almost kind of a force of nature. It's true. That's why he's in, um, what's the one that we did with Kate Winslet? Oh,
0: right. That one, the Mountain that Between
2: one. Us. There you go, something like that. It's great, yeah, that's good. You know, a plane went down, and there were problems with people, but largely they were just against nature and cold.
0: Good question. That doesn't spoil it. Is it resolved in the first season? Because I didn't get picked up for a second season. It was resolved. You could. I've honestly thought
2: there wouldn't be a second season, as you know. I don't pay attention. It's anything.
1: like how I felt with the gold, where I was like, "So how are they doing a yeah. the second season? Oh wait, a minute, is there another hijacking? Another plane? Be like, oh man! <laughs> I mean, you could
2: very easily do it with an entirely different set of characters. I mean, it would be ridiculous if yeah. Idris Elba was on the plane again, but at the same time. I would give a lot for the scene where he realizes he's on a plane that's getting hijacked again. He's like,
0: again? It should be the flight on the way back from wherever he went the first time. It should should be immediate. (laughs) The very next flight, he goes on.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, then to round this out, like I said, I I don't normally go in for reality shows and that sort of thing. But after watching the first season of Welcome to Wrexham, the docuseries reality show that's tracking Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney's purchase of a middling low-tier soccer team, football team in Wales... I dare say, and I don't know if I'm a... Uh, John, Connor, are you, oh, did yeah. you watch the second I, season? I watched okay. all of it, yeah. I dare say the second season is better than the first. It's
0: interesting because I was a little weary of it. Season one was so great because it was as much about the town Right. As the team. And the town was so fascinating. And the people you met were so endearing. And they really got to investigate a lot about, you know, the history of the sport and hooliganism and things around soccer and things like that. But then so season two starts and it's like the first episode's all about Ryan and Rob's money troubles around the team. It's like, oh no, we're just gonna do this for a whole season. But then quickly it found new and interesting things to talk about. I thought season two was great. I loved it. Even though I knew the ending, I was very riveted by the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I stand by, I think season two is superior to season one. I think they improved on the format. They improved on the storytelling mechanism. They tugged at your heart. They really hit a nice rhythm of like spotlight of people in the town, focus on the team, spotlight of people in the town, focus on the yeah. team. Like it was a nice kind of balance and it left you wanting more. And ideally it's just like, it's hard not to root for all of them. And it's like, I had a hard time rooting for, you know, millionaire actor, Ryan Reynolds and all that sort of stuff. But like, it gets emotional. Well,
0: it's not about them. It's about them trying to do this for the town. I mean, yeah, they're yeah, obviously exactly, in, in big yeah. financial trouble because like, it was Cheap to buy the team, it's not cheap to keep running the team, right? And all the stuff that goes with it. And I like they introduced the women's team to the mix, which wasn't in the first season, which was an interesting yeah. part of the story.
1: Yeah, they really grew it in a, a natural way that made it even more compelling and more of a reason to watch. And so now, now we just want season three to the start. The part like that this. I love
0: that they don't really talk about is you know, they bought this team and they got one of their writer friends to run it.
1: Yeah, I love, I love, I love Humphrey Kerr, he's fantastic. Not just that, but like their co showrunner's husband. He's also a working actor, as they right. mentioned several well, times. He, he
0: auditioned season. for one of the Star Wars shows during. Yeah, for Obi Wan. Yeah. yeah, I just think like <laughs> Ron. It's like somehow I bought the Mets, and I was like, Ron, do you want to run the Mets? Like, what qualifications yeah. do you have other than being a Mets fan? Like, yeah. he's British. What I, what I
1: love is that he his, would be
0: the only American person you knew if you wanted him to run the Mets.
1: What I love about his role is that he's also like kind of the de facto, at least in season two, the de facto narrator. Yeah. But he also has wild fluctuations in his physical appearance. Yes, he does. You know, like long hair, short hair, beard, no beard. You know, like. Like, and it's just like, we're watching it. We're just like, and I know how TV is made and I understand that they film stuff later on to plug in here and stuff like that. But we're just like, we're cracking up about how like the scenes that were happening in real time, he looks completely different from scene to scene. And it's just like, it's really fascinating, but I I like him. One of the things I really liked
2: (laughs) about Humphrey is that he gave a point of view that you never see on these shows is that the celebrities involved in the middle have massive egos and they have to be handled. And there was, there was little bits of that throughout. I was like, and then Ryan spoke and it ruined everything. And I was like, (laughs) like I've worked in television and I know, and it works anywhere where there's an executive or a boss, but it's 10 times more with a celebrity person. And so like to have him say that, I was like, oh wow, they never talk about that stuff. But in the real world, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah. The, the, like the, there was a couple of episodes where he like he he's like and then Ryan texted me <laughs> right <laughs> like, 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 and, and all the texting conversations and like because Ryan and Rob are in the states and stuff is good and they're hearing about it like so it's like you're right it, it definitely pulled back the curtain on how people really are in that scenario especially on the celebrity level in a very amusing yeah. kind of way but you can also tell um, they
0: were really. Caring about it beyond the financial aspect. Oh yeah, it. they totally. really yeah. did yeah. want to win, and did want to win for these guys. And God, man, the episode with the autistic son was oh God. I mean, oh, that brutal. That was yeah.
1: But th- there was also the episode where the guy that they had hired to help transition, who just stayed, yep. you know, kind of like Chris in Neisman? the CEO role, kind of thing. When <laughs> when he, he took holiday, yeah. When he went on a vacation, that was that was very funny. And Humphrey was completely in charge. That was very funny.
0: Let's take a quick break and talk about, this is our final show of the year. It's always our, our last show we leave you with for a couple of weeks till we come back in January. And we'd like to take this time to thank everyone who supported iFanboy and our various shows throughout 2023. We put out a lot of shows. It takes a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of time, a lot of time away from our families, a lot of expense. And we could not do all those things and make it worth it without you, the supporters, and especially our patrons at patreon.com slash ifanboy. You are direct supporters. You've unlocked several shows that everyone gets to enjoy, all the splode shows, including our media splode. And hopefully we make it worth your while. We've, you know, There's a Discord community. There's a Facebook community. There's a monthly patron hangout. There's the patron pick you get to vote on our, for our pick of the week show. There's all kinds of fun things you get to do, hopefully, that are fun and hopefully make it worth it beyond just supporting the show, which hopefully is the primary thing you become a patron for. We introduced the tier exclusive merchandise this year, which means if you become a patron and you're a patron for three months at whatever tier you're at, you get that tier's merchandise sent directly to you. You can jump around tiers to get all the merchandise if you want. It goes for everything from stickers at the bottom to really nice hoodies at the top. People really like those. We've been seeing photos of people wearing the shirts and they really like them and we don't even have them. That's the irony of this. We don't even have our own exclusive merchandise, which we would like, but we don't have it. That's just the way it goes. Only the patrons get it. That's how exclusive it is. So thanks to all the patrons throughout the year. We appreciate everyone who supported us. And there's all kinds of ways. If you don't want to be a patron, you can go to family.threadless.com. We have our t-shirts there. There's still some time for the holidays. If you want to get your grandma a uh, Nothing Makes Sense, Nothing Matters t-shirt, you can do that at family.threadless.com.
2: What is this nihilistic shirt,
0: dear? <laughs> exactly. Get it for your entire family. And they will wear them during the holiday dinner com slash support is our digital tip jar. And if you want to throw a couple bucks in at the end of the year and don't want to be a patron, that'd be great. If you are a um, unhinged billionaire and you want to toss a couple of million dollars into the tip jar, we'll figure it out. It'll cause a headache. We'll figure it out. I feel That's like people don't believe us about that. No, we'll definitely do I it. I
2: think that they're thinking, listen, I, I can't. It's not a bit. Like they're saying like they'll take care of it, but I think it's going to be too much for them. And I want to spare them that hassle. And I, we are no, te- no, we're, no. Connor and I, we've been here telling you we will handle it. We appreciate it. the concern. We d- but we'll oh, handle absolutely it. Absolutely appreciate it. But at yeah. the same time, give us that
0: money. <laughs> Don't right. Right. I mean, if you want to drop hundred two hundred million dollars million into the PayPal, we'll figure it out. If we're,
2: if we're talking, we're talking, I mean, a paltry six figures. We're gonna make right. that work too. That's what we do. We make right. free money work. <laughs> we'll make change out of that PayPal donation. You want to give us 150000 dollars That works. If you want to give us That's fine, too. Right. If you want to send it all in pennies or or nickels, we'll send you an address. If you want to do $15 billion, we're going to make that work. That's what we do.
0: There'll be a lot of frantic phone calls and emails, but it'll eventually work itself out. I mean, the show will start coming from a boat. I don't think there's (laughs) any way around that. (laughs) iFanboy.com slash Amazon. Welcome to iFanboy Pick the Week podcast (laughs) featuring Martin Scorsese. Right. I don't know why you're making me read these things. If you're listening to the show as it's coming out, there's still a week to go until Christmas. So if you wanted to get any last-minute holiday shopping done at family.com slash Amazon, you can find a general shopping link right there on that page, as well as all of our Booksplode books. You can check those out. If you've listened to those shows and want to check those books out, you can buy those books via those links. And then bookshop.org is our partner with, that helps support local bookstores. You can also find those links on the Booksplode shows as well. And again, we thank everyone who has supported us throughout the year, throughout this year, any year. We say it all the time, but it's absolutely true. We wouldn't be here without you. And thank you very much. Let's move on to music.
1: All right. The hard balance, at least for me, definitely for me, Josh, probably a little bit for you with music, is balancing the nostalgia versus the new and the the more current kind of things. Because, you know facing facts we're getting older and a lot of the bands that i was into when i was a teenager for better or for worse have come back or are still around and are playing out and i'm actually i was at, i was at a show recently with some friends and we were talking about this phenomenon and i was saying you know i'm in full support of all you know these guys in their 50s now you know playing out and doing uh, rele- you know releases and repackaging and stuff like that of their of their previous releases and playing festivals and doing these tours because like cash in they because they weren't making money in their 20s when they were doing it the first time right so um, now that we're all a little older we have a little more disposable income sure make some money off of it and this year was kind of a banner year for w- one specific musician who's probably on my Mount Rushmore of music you know kind of gods and that is uh, Walter Schreifels who originally was in Gorilla Biscuits and Youth of Today in the 1980s and then New York hardcore scene and then helped define post-hardcore with with quicksand in the early 90s and then had a successful third act in the late 90s, early 2000s with Rival Schools. Well, this year was a big year for Walter because it was the 30th anniversary of quicksand's first record, Slip. Rival Schools reunited uh, and toured. Quicksand also toured in celebration of Slip and Gorilla Biscuits just played a bunch this summer, right? So he was very, very busy. And that together put in one large package gave us a beautiful 30th anniversary edition of slip vinyl release. The folks at iodine records outdid themselves. They did a, you know, kind of a a standard just, you know, re-release of the album on color vinyl, you know, with a remaster doing the whole thing. But then there was the deluxe edition that came with a nice inch thick book with photos and flyers and writing from people who were there at the time and people who worked on it and all that sort of stuff. And it really became just like a a great, uh, actually Walter referred to it as an air. You know, like he's like, hey, you guys put together this thing that documented this amazing thing that we did. And it's, you know, has a proud spot on my bookshelf. Rival Schools did a similar approach with a different record label, Run for Cover Records did it, where they did a deluxe edition of their first record, United by Fate, with photos and stories and all that sort of stuff. And just really this new kind of deluxe book edition with vinyl kind of is like a new way to that I really like and I wish more bands I enjoyed did because it's just like this beautiful way to celebrate this record that's standing the test of time. And then just the fact that was able to see all three of Walter's bands, Quicksand, Rival Schools, and Gorilla Biscuits live, not once, but multiple times this year. You know, Josh, you and I got together in New York City to see Rival Schools uh, over the summer. I saw them twice on that tour. I saw Quicksand, I think, three times this year. I saw Gorilla Biscuits three or four times this year. Like, it was just a a lot, a lot of fun. So, you know, it it is one thing to, you know, kind of, I don't want to say we're stuck in the past, but we're celebrating the past, and we're celebrating these songs that we love, that we grew up with. This year was pretty special in that regard.
2: I don't know that I have trouble, With old versus new, because I don't think I bother with new unless I find something, but that does not ever happen. You know, it's funny is like the last, I always think of the last new band was when you were like, you should check out this band Cloud Nothings. And that was nine years ago. But, you know, (laughs) so that's how that happens. I just try to find anything that makes me happy, basically, that I want to keep listening to. And a lot of that has been Walter Trifles music this year. So that's been a thing. Oh, God, I actually really hate how uh, predictable this is to me. But uh, Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr., he has this other side, pro- he has many side projects. He's involved in a lot of things. This guy loves to play music, but he has a side project called Heavy Blanket, who Ron and I actually saw perform live that they opened for My Bloody Valentine. It's a yep. instrumental thing. There's some weird fake concocted story about some old friends that got together. I'm pretty sure it's just him. A lot of years ago, I want to say it was 2012, they released the first Heavy Blanket album and it basically sounds like stoner doom riffs. It sounds like an instrumental Black Sabbath. It's kind of what it is before. And I listened to it quite a bit and, and I, I always really enjoyed it. It's a great thing to sort of put on backgroundy and you know jay mascus will just noodle around and he's got a great sense of melody and it's really fun this album comes out and i thought oh cool that'll be a new one and i found myself listening to it over and over and over again there's no vocals again but it's no longer a black sabbath kind of thing it's almost like a poppy psychedelic thing and I know that you'll be like, oh, well, Dinosaur Jr. sounds like that. And that's what he, he doesn't sound like Dinosaur Jr. in it. It's a really fun, catchy, instrumental, sort of almost like a jammy kind of thing. And I listened to it a lot originally. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then like a month or so ago, I was like, all right, right, this. And I said, listen to it again. I was like, this is great. I'd listened to it when I was reading comics. For a while, the last couple of years, I've been listening to jazz while I read comics. If I have to like shut out other noises, but I kept going back to this, and it made me really happy. So I don't know if any of that sounds like something you would want, or you just you're even marginally intrigued by it. Pull this up on your your streaming system, whatever. You know, like uh, you don't get a lot of instrumental rock that is worth a damn that doesn't sound like bad jammy stuff. It's good jammy stuff, I suppose. That's one of my favorite albums this year.
1: So going back to balancing the new and the old or whatnot, me and my friend Scott were driving to a show. We actually were going to see Bob Mould play uh, his solo electric and Scott was driving and he was just playing stuff you know, off his phone in the, in the car. And you ever have one of those moments where you're just like you're talking something and the song's on the background and the song is breaking through the conversation to the point where you have to be like, hold on, what is this? <laughs> Well, so that's what happened when I heard Sincere Engineer, which is a punk band that originates out of Chicago. It's pretty much the project or the focus project of a woman by the name of Deanna Bellos. She started in 2015 as kind of her own solo project. They just came out with a new record called Cheap Grills. And it is just, it's great. It's got energy. It's got vitality. It falls in the in the punk category, but like she opened for the Hold study. At one, the Hold study does all those shows, and uh, every year they do kind of a residency in Brooklyn over like a week. And one of the nights she opened for them, right? So it's not rancid, you know, kind of Liberty Spike punk, but the kind of more indie punk in that kind of way. But she has a song called Landline, which is just that's the song that broke through. Where I was like, who is this? This is great, and it's just it's just a lot of fun. And like I haven't seen I haven't seen them play live yet. I'm excited to if they're. I'm hoping they're going to tour. I know they're doing a bunch of shows in the Midwest to celebrate the record release. as a record release show in Chicago right before Christmas. But the first chance I get to go see them live, I'm, I really want to. The album is called Cheap Grills. The band is sincere engineer. I strongly recommend it. It's just fun, fun, electricity, indie punk. Definitely recommend and also, in regards of new music, there is a Long Island hardcore band named Koyo, who have been rising in the ranks over the past couple of years. And they're kind of like, at this point, probably the biggest current newish Long Island hardcore band coming out of it. They just came out with a new record called Would You Miss It? Their first full length. One of the great things, and Josh, I think you'll appreciate this, and maybe you too, Connor. One of the great aspects of Koyo is that you could look at the guys in the band, and any individual one of them also could work in a pizza place on Long Island. Mm <laughs> hmm. <laughs> That's what they look like. They just look like Vinny from The Pizza Place, right? But um, Excellent. Their album, Do You Miss It? It's a banger. Every song is is great. They are blast live. They had two record release shows, kind of celebration shows here on Long Island. I went to the first one and it was just like elbow to elbow packed with kids, young and old, just like continuing the legacy of Long Island hardcore into the future, which is something I'm really happy to see. Koyo is just great. So I oh. strongly, strongly recommend it.
2: I should have mentioned The Sleeping. Just to get off that Long Island thing, as is I saw The Sleeping open for The Shins, and there were, I guess they were a Long Island hardcore band that I'd never heard of. They put on a great show, and I yep. love their album that came out this year.
1: I just slipped one in. There it is. Let's talk about slipping one in. A band I discovered just like two weeks ago, this band called Millspec, put out a record called Marathon, which again was another situation where like 30 seconds into the first song, you're like, oh, this is good, right? So Milspec is, uh, they're based out of Toronto, so a Canadian band. Been around for a while, they've got a bunch of releases, but they're a f- full-length marathon, just 10 solid songs of like good melodic hardcore, you know, very, you know, in the Dag Nasty kind of column of like fun hardcore to sing along to. One of the challenges I've had with recent years of hardcore is that hardcore exists on the spectrum where one end is a metal influence, another end is a melodic influence, and I Eileen more towards the melodic millspec definitely kind of checked that box for me that was a pleasant surprise and a record i've been enjoying more towards the end of the year
2: the thing that ron and i probably talked about the most in a post riot fest world was tim the let it be edition from the replacements basically this is the let, let it, it Be. i should let it be didn't i listen they also have a song called let it be that's uh there's an <laughs> album called let it be actually which is fuck it was just a better album than tim And what this is, is they went and they took Tim, which was the first major label album from the replacements at a time where going from indie to major label was like a really big deal that is a controversy that doesn't even exist anymore in any meaningful way, which we'll just let that go. And the album itself is excellent, but it suffers very much of sounding as if it is from the time. And also mixed with the fact that the replacements were hellbent on not sounding good or doing a good job at any point, almost Mm -hmm. in opposition to their talent.
1: Talk about self destructive. The most self destructive destructive band ever. That is what's
2: fascinating about them is that every chance they had, they blew on purpose. And, you know, you read that book, The Trouble Boys, or whatever. You don't have to be a fan of the music as much as to just, like, sort of keep reading their hubris and be like, why do you keep sabotaging yourselves? And it is fascinating. Anyway, getting back around, that's how I got interested in the placements, by the way, that specific psychosis that they seem to have. But anyway, the album doesn't sound awesome today. It sounds very much of the time for much of my life and Ron's life, we're all the same age. Music was produced poorly. P- music sounded really good in the 60s and 70s. And then in the 80s and 90s, they were like, we got all this new stuff, and they made it sound worse. Lots of reverb that didn't need to be there, chorus, all sorts of stuff. And what the producer here was take that album and make it sound like a great recording, a timeless great recording. And you see these songs that are great songs, absolutely come alive in a timeless manner. And it's great for that, It's great to hear Bastards of Young not sound like it is from the mid 80s, but instead, 84, 84, 85, I forget, but just sound like it's a great album. But not only that, but what this represents is I don't necessarily want them to go through, but there are a lot of wonderful albums that if they could make them sound as if they were being recorded today, you know, by Steve Albini or by who, you know, just to sort of let the song shine and take out what were ultimately bad production ideas. They'd be amazing.
1: Well, yeah. What got me about this is what listening to, it just sounds like a completely yes. different record. Like it just like you hear stuff that was mm-hmm. in the recording that was so buried in the mix that you didn't know was right. there before. Right. It just, it felt so much more alive and real. Yeah. It just, it, and it, I, it, I'm, I'm, I won't lie. If, yeah, if they do
2: this to Zen arcade by Husker Du, I couldn't be happier.
1: Yeah. I don't know if they, I don't know if they would though. I no, don't and
2: know and would. that's all fair. But I think that, I think yeah, that that would yeah. lend so much to, I think, I don't know if it makes it more accessible, but like if, it feels like, oh, this sounds like it should. This is like the Giles Martin remixes on the Beatles albums. It's hard to be upset with them because what they did was they got rid of the garbage sound and then pulled all the things forward that you were supposed to hear from the beginning. Anyways, it's really fascinating. It's one of those things where I heard about it, people asked about it, and I thought, I'll get to it. And I thought, it can't live up to what people are saying. People always exaggerate this stuff. And it was even better than I would have imagined. Huge thing. Mind-blowing.
1: And then lastly, probably my show of the year, I would have to give it to. I drove down to Washington, D.C. to go to a show, part of a festival called Reunion Summer, And it was some folks in D.C. who were putting on a whole bunch of shows and events and things like that. And I went down for the Saturday night show, the second show of it, to see at Saint Stephen's Church in Washington D.C., which folks might recognize. There's some old video of Fugazi playing there in like 1988 or 89. It's this nice little church in the north part of D.C. that has a community room that the D.C. punk scene did shows that for years and years and years. And this was a fundraiser for the church because I guess they're going under hard times and that sort of thing. And so as part of the theme of it, it was reunions. And so two classic bands from the 90s that I never got to see live back in the day, um, one band called Samuel that was at state college, Pennsylvania, that had a, a woman singer and was kind of in the emo world. They had they did a split seven inch with Texas is the reason. So that could kind of give you a sense of where they existed in the scene. They reunited and played a set and were fantastic. But then Lincoln who was probably the closest to a a mythic band that none of my friends got to see. They were out of West Virginia and played in the very early 90s, like 93, 94, and then broke up. They had one song on a split seven inch with another band called Hoover. It was the, the Lincoln Hoover split. That is a split seven inch that so many of us growing up in the 90s in the hardcore scene just held up as just like the pinnacle of like the perfect split seven inch. And like both bands were complementary but unique and yada yada. And Lincoln was just this mystery to all of us because they had dropped that split seven inch. And like, I think two other seven inches in and. That was it. And then we're gone. And we all listened to it religiously and never thought we'd ever get to see them again. But sure enough, here we are. No band breaks up. Everybody gets back together. Lincoln reunited to play these shows and it blew the doors off the place. It was just fantastic. It totally paid off and it was kind of was a nice, you know, kind of like closing the loop. On uh, you know trying to cross bands on the list, like say being able to see, okay, I saw them, I saw them, I saw them. These are two bands that I had written off that I never thought I would get to see, and here we are in 2023, all much much older. And you know, I think the show was done by 10 o'clock, which was fantastic. <laughs> so we can all get home and get a awesome. good night's sleep. Yeah, <laughs> it was worth the train ride down to DC to be at. I actually ran into people I knew from back in the day in the 90s for the scene who, who remembered my zine and all that sort of stuff. So it was it was a really great kind of experience to go through. And both bands are awesome. Samuel and Lincoln are now actively. Playing shows. Samuel did some tour dates. Samuel, they had a new record. They got back together and, and were rehearsing and then wrote new music. And so they put out a new record and they also put out a record that collected all of their stuff from the nineties all onto one release. And I, I strongly recommend them as well. They now go by Samuel SC for state college. Cause I guess there was some copyright conflict with another band called Samuel or something, but yeah, both were fantastic. And it was just like, never thought I'd get to see him. And I did. So I'm very happy about that.
0: All right. So last year we didn't talk about podcasts. We talk about games this year. We're swapping it and talking about podcasts and not games. And let's start it off, Josh. For me, I think Strike Force Five, the Colbert,
2: Fallon, Kimmel, Myers, and John Oliver podcast that took place during the strike. Name's actually kind of brilliant when you put it together that way. Was one of my favorite things. Not favorite podcasts. One of my favorite things to listen to. Four brilliant people and Jimmy Fallon riff off. I'm I'm overselling it. You did a little that joke on, on the media split. Did I? I'm still yeah. not sure if he's really dumb or not. It was the mystery of the whole thing. I know that he wasn't up to speed. Anyway, it's not the point. To listen to those guys riff with each other and listen to the, the way that their different comedy minds work. And I'm 100% a David Brent when it comes to comedy, is that I consider myself a non-existent or failed comedian, but I love the mechanics of it. And so to listen to the way that these different people tell jokes with each other and for each other was a fantastic time. It was laugh-out-loud funny almost all the way through every episode and the fact that it had to end upset me. But then, in fact, the fact that it even was able to exist is amazing. At no point in history would this exist. You know, where, you know, well, right. No, that's true. But also like in the 80s, 90s, these people were rightly or not rivals to each other. They didn't interact publicly that was not the story the networks would have never allowed it but here we live in a different world and they're comedians who respect what each other do there was bits where they forgot that they were on a podcast in a way and you know they were talking about people and fucking naming names you know like jim belushi not well regarded in this group just little things like that that made it feel like it wasn't a show as much as it was a conversation between people whose job is to make jokes
0: It was very, very funny. But one of the things I liked about it the best was that only really in America, at least these five guys or so can have these conversations Mm -hmm. because they're the only ones who really know what it takes to do those shows. And so I liked that too. Even just the conversations in the beginning more so, they had a couple of shows where they just talked about the mechanics of their show or stories behind their show and only they can really commiserate. Those are the conversations I really found fascinating Mm -hmm. where like, what do you guys think when this happens or has this ever happened to you or this, where you do this? That's interesting to me. You know, from everything I've ever read about or heard about doing these shows, it's you're living in this bubble that you can't get out of forever. All the when time. You're in it. And so, you don't get this as they get to talk about it that much. Right. With the people that could understand what they're going through. Can you imagine so was interesting how
2: therapeutic that must have been for these guys to be able to do it right. all together with them? And, like, we got to sit in on it. And, like, I don't watch most of these shows. I just, like, I don't care about celebrity interviews or, for it or whatever. But being able to see, you know, people who... I don't think John Oliver should have been there genre wise, but whatever he's, he's brilliant. You know, I just, I didn't know what it was until like Connor, you sort of mentioned it as if I did know. And I was like, Oh yeah. And then, and then, (laughs) you know, my wife just mainlined them. she's like, you have to listen to them. And it's one of those things where, you know, I'll take a laugh any day of the week and I'm out there walking my dog and fucking laughing. And then by the time you get the last couple episodes, I knew that was it. And so I had to like save them. I was like, nope, I got to wait. I finally
0: just listened to the final one a week ago. Oh, it was delightful. I was driving home and I was like, ah, I was stuck in traffic. And I knew I was going to be there at least an hour. I was like, oh, fuck it. It's time. So I did it. It was good. The Dave episode was terrific. The Jonathan Stewart episode was terrific. The big heartbreak is that apparently Colbert screwed up. He was supposed to invite Conan. Conan didn't get get to come on, which is sort of on brand for Conan. And so I wanted to mention Conan O'Brien needs a friend. It's a podcast that I don't listen to slash watch every episode. It really depends on who the guests are. Even though I think Conan and his co-hosts, Sonomov, Sessian, and our, our old podcasting pal, Matt Gorley are very funny. There's just so much to do in the world that I only really check in when I see It's just someone I really like. He's got on it. But he had a ton of guests this year. That
1: It's like the approach of Marin. Like, I only listen right. to Marin when it's somebody who I actually want to hear. Yeah.
0: I know if I'll listen to a random episode, it'll be funny. But I just don't have time to listen to them all. Yeah. The first episode this year, I think, was Timothy Oliphant's return. And for a guy that handsome, he shouldn't be that funny. Like, it's not fair. He's as weird and funny as Conan is. And, you know, you had Jim Downey come on this year. and That was massive year, for our age, That was an incredible episode, Jim Downey being one of the all-time great SNL writers, talking about all these classic sketches that they worked on. Conan's very, very, very funny. And he's very, very, very fast. And it just bums me out. He would have been so good on Strike Force 5. But he has his regulars like John Mulaney, mm-hmm. who's very funny when he comes on. And again, people he can talk to or talk to him that only talk have these conversations mm-hmm. with him. Oh, oh, Harrison Ford. Have you ever heard Harrison Ford on a podcast? He did Conan's show. It was fucking weird and awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. So like, he gets these interesting guests and he's really interested in what they have to say. He's really funny. He's really nice. And from everything I've I've heard here in town, he is legitimately, genuinely that nice in real life. Mm -hmm. It's still a very, very funny show when I check in on it.
1: One podcast that I started listening to this year was actually one that was on Connor's list last year that we didn't talk about. My podcast listening has gone way down because of, you know, lack of commute and all that, that sort of stuff.
2: When you run, do you listen to podcasts or do you listen to
1: music? Yeah, no, I do, but I but I run enough to listen to the podcast I was already sure. listening to. So I wasn't really expanding what I was listening to that much. But I started going into the city more often for work and had you know had a little more time. So started so I, I expanded a little over the summer. And so therefore I don't listen to the Conan show, I don't listen to any of the ringer shows or anything like that. But Connor and a couple other people I know had recommended the town with Matt Baloney, which is a joint production from the puck media news site and The Ringer. And it's basically just a half hour you know, two or three episodes a week covering entertainment business. You know, in a, you know the town, referring to L. A. and Hollywood and that sort of thing. It's fun and insightful to listen to. It's covering the current events of what's happening in the entertainment industry with a perspective from Baloney, who was a um, lawyer. I believe he was a lawyer, right? He was a, right? he Conor, was a lawyer. Yeah. Then he
0: became the it's editor d- of the Hollywood Reporter with Kim Masters, and he did that for right. a, forever. And then he left oh, that yeah. to Dupac. I told yeah. you guys that Kim Masters was the wife of a
2: friend of mine who I used to yes. work with, and I go play music with him, and she didn't like me. Not surprising.
1: A lot of really, really good insight, you know, say say with the strike, with everything that's going on with the earnings and layoffs and all that fun stuff that's going on in the entertainment industry being turned upside down this year. It's just been a really compelling and interesting podcast to listen to, get some really great guests on for interviews and for good conversations. And it's just like, it's a nice way to, you know, augment the scrolling through news headlines on Deadline and Hollywood Reporter and stuff like that to get a little more insight and commentary to what's going on in entertainment. So I, I really,
0: really enjoy My it. My two quick thoughts is one, uh, in the past, on this show we've talked about the business which is kim masters once a week podcast about hollywood and the town has rendered the business irrelevant anything they talk about on friday on the business he's already done a half an hour on the town and he comes on as her co-host to talk the first six minutes about the the news of the day but it's always something he's already done a half an hour on so by the time i listen to it it's like you're giving me the, the bullet points here and i've already heard about this so he sort of rendered his old boss's show irrelevant second of all <laughs> it's from what i can tell from what i've ta- people i've talked to it's like a must listen if you're in any way involved in the entertainment business yeah I mean, Ron and I, I'm in video games, runs in digital media. We're not in TV and film, but we're in the entertainment business in our different ways. And you got to listen to it. It's just... Yeah. It keeps his finger on the pulse of what's important in the industry right now.
1: Very well done, and just like and gets good guests on, and is it's always worth listening to.
0: Yeah, even if he has dumb opinions, he's yeah. just terrible creative thoughts, and his yes. producer yeah. is like yeah. a stereotype millennial dude. But I always, I mean, I listen to every episode, even if I'm not super interested in the topic. Yep, same here.
1: Because also because it's short enough, yeah. like coming in at like 28 minutes, 29 to minutes, it. 32 minutes. Yeah, it's like it's the right length and gets the information across. And yeah, I really really enjoy it.
0: Similarly. There's a show called Pivot, which is on the Vox Media Network, hosted by Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, two extremely rich egomaniacs who I probably wouldn't like in real life. But it's a show that comes on twice a week. It's on Tuesdays and Fridays, I think. And they cover media, politics, tech, and business news. Each episode is an hour. So between those two shows, I get a really good overview of the main issues of the day. Obviously, they've been doing a lot in AI lately. Kara Swisher is a tech reporter. Scott Galloway is a business professor and business owner. They have two very different points of view, but they always have very interesting conversations. And there's usually a guest interview. They've done a couple of really interesting shows lately. They just did one as we're recording this about the state of local news and media and stuff like that. So I always find it's a good overview of what's happening, what's important in tech, business, politics, etc. And even though they both are completely out of touch with reality because they're both really wealthy, they have good...
1: Yeah, Kara Swisher is not, yeah, she's... <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I trust me. But, yeah. but
0: the conversations are interesting, and you don't have to like hosts to enjoy the show. Like, I listened to Mike and the Mad Dog for 10 years. <laughs> I can understand falling asleep on Mike right now, by the way. I get it. It's a good overview of what's going on in those buckets. And I think, Ron, you might find some use and value in it. They do talk a lot about the tech industry.
1: Yeah, because Kara's been, I mean, yeah, I've been reading her since the early
0: 2000s. Yeah. She's a little bit too much fealty to tech people, and he is a little too much fealty to business people. But that's the thing that really gets me. Other than that, they they have good thoughts, even if they don't realize how out of touch they are with reality. But that's fine. Nice. Again, I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite shows of the
2: year was Death on the Lot from Adam McKay. And his team of very talented producers, I believe he had previously done death at the wing, which was really one of the things after the last dance that got me into watching basketball again, whereas that he had taken basketball players in the 80s who died, NBA players, specifically wing players, and then sort of laid them on as a parallel to how the policies of Reagan's presidency destroyed working class in uh, urban America, which that sounds fun to everybody, right? That's a good time. In this series, Death on the Lot, it's a very similar approach, but it has to do with sort of Hollywood deaths and how, largely how those are part of what happened as part of the sort of WHOAC and the political systems of the Cold War and how that negatively affected life. It sounds like that wouldn't make any sense, but it really is done incredibly deftly. I'd say the high point of the season, and I think it's the last episode of this last season, was the story of the making of Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan, John Wayne film that was filmed in the desert, not really far from where nuclear testing was done. And how absolutely horrible And terrible that location was and how no one kind of cared about it, you know, and that was juxtaposed against the reputation that John Wayne has versus what he was actually like. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head and I can't who the leading like so many people died following that, you know, over the years later of having cancer because basically they were in a radioactive fallout zone.
0: Yeah. They don't know if that's the case, though. That's yes. like the urban legend no, it, about it. No, it is. But, but the, the the way it's presented here is there's an awful lot of
2: correlation, not causation. But sure. But it makes a lot of sense. And when the, you sort sure. of hear all those stories. They also all smoke 25 packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah, but there's different kinds of cancer. Sure. You know, when we think about Adam McKay, many of us will go, oh, right, he made the funny movies. And obviously since. Does he? Yes. Not anymore. No, I know. I, well, no, that's not true. You know, the movies are still funny. They're just so fucking sad at the same time but it's definitely not like he's not a comedy director anymore. And you could see that it's funny because if you watched the Mark Wahlberg, Bill Farrell one, the other guys. And Mm. I think that, I don't know if that was his first sort of political, like it was, a funny movie on the on the surface, but underneath it, it's all about rich getting richer and poorer getting poorer, mortgage, you know, fraud, stuff like that. Steve Coogan is the villain in that. Anyway, the point is he's still funny, but the funny doesn't overshadow the serious, or at least just the really interesting stories. I listened to the first episode if you've
0: mentioned and I enjoyed it, but I just get lost in all sure. the I don't have time without community. There's a
2: good George Reeves episode about the de- the death of that. Is sort he of narrating Superman all character. of them? Yeah, he does. He has that voice
0: problem. Yeah, he has a
2: tremor. Yeah, I looked it up, I was like, what's going on with his voice? And I actually really liked that he kept doing it. Like he, he was like, well, this is what I sound like. This is how I'm going to do it. I, I, I love that show. He has the ability to put resources into it. And so, you know, so much history, podcasts and story or, or you know, just people sitting around who are talking and read, read stuff off of Wikipedia is not good. But, you know, I felt like I had journalistic standards, but it was done in sort of an oral storytelling style. Loved it.
0: Are all these shows or almost all these shows from networks? That one is on, it was on one of them, I think, yeah. Look at us playing into the podcasting narrative. Yeah. <laughs> listen, we're all guilty of it. Plain English with Derek Thompson's on the Ringer Network. That's another show that comes up twice a week that I don't listen to every episode. It really depends on the subject, but he is a writer from The Atlantic who you know does an hour or so on a topic. Sometimes it's topical, Sometimes since it's evergreen. He did a really great series on the history of Israel and Palestine after, obviously, the war started. Several episodes in a row from various points of view with various guests of various political and ethnic backgrounds, and it really gave you a really interesting overview from various sides of that conflict. I don't always, like, there was one episode about, like, what is happiness? I was like, I don't care, and I turned it off. So like, If it's an interesting topic to me, I think he does a really good job of doing a a good look at the subject and gets an expert to come on and talk about it. And he's very curious, smart, and it's worth it. Again, if he pops up, you're like, oh, that's an interesting topic I want to know more about. It's usually going to bring you something, some sort of knowledge you didn't have before.
1: So I went from last year and before that listening to zero podcasts on the Ringer Network to now listening to two, because in addition to The Town, I started listening to The Watch, which is a podcast with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, which is essentially our media explode <laughs> show it's just two friends talking about what they're watching on tv right mm. i happen to know andy greenwald i've known him for a long time I, I actually he interviewed me he wrote a book on emo in the early 2000s and i was interviewed in that book if you go look it up it's called nothing feels good and since then, have you know marginally stayed in touch and that sort of thing i knew he's been doing this podcast and, you know he wrote for grantland and was part of that whole kind of orbit around simmons and that whole grouping but i, I honestly do can't tell you what made me start listening to it. I mean, like us, they've been doing it for many minutes. I think they like, they're their 600th episode or something like that. You know, they do two episodes a week, but there was some moment in time where I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to this and actually ended up enjoying it. I knew nothing about Chris Ryan and turns out that he's, you know, also into hardcore and into some similar music and and that sort of thing. And so like, they have a good rapport. It's like, it made me laugh because I'm like, oh, this is what it must feel like for everybody listening to iFanboy, right? So, um, but you know, they've had some good conversations about, about TV and the stuff that's, you know, that's on and active in production, like on a weekly kind of what they're watching and and critique of episodes and things like that. There was, I don't remember the moment that made me start listening to it, but I started listening to it and haven't stopped since.
2: I'm going to pull an audible. Uh Uh-oh. I was going to talk about Lost Hills, The Dark Prince, which is a Pushkin, a Malcolm Gladwell thing, and it's this whole story about the surfer Mickey Dora and the history of surfing in America, and you should listen to it. It's fine. But I'm going to talk about The Old Man and the Three with J.J. Reddick and his co-host Tommy Alter. Reddick was an NBA player, sharpshooter specialist. He retired a couple of years ago. He would say he was the first guy. I think Jeff, Richard Jefferson would say he was the first guy to have a podcast while he was still a professional NBA player. Which is super common though. Yes. It, but he was, I mean, I think you'd say he was the sort of first one. But Trailblazer. I don't think it's Amazon, but he's on Amazon. So whatever Amazon's podcast thing is where it is. And he does long form interviews of NBA players. There's other things to it. There's it shows in the middle where which are more analysis. And he has really smart people come on Athlete interviews are not always awesome, but he's a wonderful interviewer. Like, it's kind of shocking. I've had people say, I've heard the phrase, like, God doesn't give with both hands. And J.J. Riddick is quite handsome. He was a pretty good basketball player and had a whole career, but he's a really good interviewer. And you might hear him on ESPN calling games sometimes. He's so boring in that role. But he asks wonderful questions. He has conversations. He, you know, can relate to his subjects. I've been so surprised to sort of listen to long form interviews with other athletes and stuff that he's done and sort of a basketball mind that's very, very interesting. Some of the analytical shows that he does in the middle, uh, Tim Legler, another former player and Richard Jefferson are really great to sort of have a different perspective on NBA games, you know, but largely like the thing that I kept coming out of it is, is like he's a really intelligent, he's a good listener. And he knows how to ask questions. And again, you know, when we talk about, you know, the way that I want to do interviews is I want to find out about those people and where they come from and what makes them tick, not necessarily, you know, basketball questions. And I think that he's really wonderful at that. It's incredibly impressive. And I actually listen to it, not every single episode, but very frequently. It's a great thing to throw on. Who's the old man in the scenario? He is. He's both? He's the old man and the three. Which, by the way, the fucking title is a Hemingway reference. Yeah. Well, didn't he go to Duke? He did go to Duke, and he went all four years, and at one point, he actually started paying attention to his classes. How impressed are you that I knew he went to Duke? (laughs) I guess impressed, but I'm not all that surprised. You know things like that.
0: Finally, I want to talk about a show that Josh mentioned on one of our media split shows called The Set. This is a true – it's not true crime. Well, I guess it is a true crime podcast, but it's not that kind of true crime podcast. It's a look back on – Kind of a documentary. It's more of a documentary. Early 90s crack-fueled crime ridden New York City focusing on the 30 precinct, which was incredibly corrupt. There's a documentary about it. This has been covered extensively, but this was a really compelling multi-episode deep dive into how it became so corrupt, what it meant to have that corruption, and then how they got out of it, maybe. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that the title was terrible. Yes. There's a reference to something on the show, but it's just not a good title. I don't know. It, all, it makes it seem like it's going to be more broad than it is, and I think it stops people from hearing it. It's just a bad title. The set refers to, when they're doing like an undercover sting, the fake location they sort of set up. and They call it them like a movie set, the set. It's just dumb. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what was great about this show? Several things. Several things. It was a great look, and I, I mean, I lived through that era. I remember it happening. I remember Michael Dowd. I remember him being on the cover of New York Daily News. But the New York characters on this show... Uh-huh were unparalleled. I several times had to check that those were not
2: reenacting actors. I thought (laughs) there's no way that all of these people sound so much like central casting New York cops because of the way they were talking and the sounds of their voices. And in fact, the stories. The stories sounded fake. And I had to keep reminding myself that these are, by the way, also fantastic production in terms of getting first person interviews on tape.
0: Zach Levitt was the host. He got really incredible access, including to many of the cops who were on the take and the, the criminals they were working oh my with. God. Um, that one guy. It ends up being a very heartbreaking story, not just because of the corruption, but because some very well meaning and courageous people tried to put an end to it and politics got in the way. And egos got in the way. And they did a good job of cleaning it up and you can argue about whether how clean it actually got. But then there was a the one guy Who worked for the prosecutor who was, was he an ex cop? I think he was. I I know he was like the one, yeah. He was like the kind of the hero of the story. And he just got his legs taken out from him at the end, you know, trying to do the right thing. And it was just incredibly frustrating, but it was a really compelling listen. You know, you don't have to have been a New Yorker like me at the time to enjoy it. Josh certainly wasn't. And he enjoyed it. Really great story, really compelling story about corruption, the nature of corruption, how easy it is to become a corrupt cop these guys don't enter the academy with the intention of becoming a corrupt cop it just sort of happens and it was an interesting look at that you know there's a couple of guys at the beginning you think oh that's the good cop and nope and so really fascinating how murky and gray and no easy answers there are to these problems the nature of those stories
2: you think that can't be true so right. off like the things that the cops did. It's a lot like, oh Christ, the David Simon show that he just did. The deuce? No. The street. You will the oh, we, we own this city. city. That's right. Yeah. And you're like, oh, cops would and it's it was so bad. It's you won't believe it, but it's true. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It
0: was a very good, very good yes, show. Absolutely. All right. Let's turn to books. We love books. We love to read. We love reading comics. We love reading prose. We love reading all kinds of books. I've been in love with this. Thursday Murder Club mystery series. I think it's the fourth or fifth book I'm talking about here, The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman, who is a former British TV writer and presenter who quit his job on TV to become a full-time novelist because his books really got popular. The general premise of these books is it takes place in a retirement home in rural England and these adorable retired British people in their 70s solve murders, one of whom it helps is a former MI6 spy. Besides the fact that it's incredibly funny, besides the fact that he's such a gift for language and voice and character, and everyone is really delightful to be around, this book was really something because it dealt with some really heavy issues, and it did it in a really deft way. One of them, not the main characters, but one of the main characters is, uh, I don't want to spoil this. One of the main characters is, secondary character has had Alzheimer's this entire time. These four books, and this is the book where it finally comes to a head. And we hadn't really dealt with that kind of thing in this book yet, even though these are people surrounded by really old people who die. We've had other people die in the book just from being old. This was really rough and emotional, but it was handled in a way that didn't overpower the book. It didn't drag it down. It made sense for the characters, and it really gave it a depth that hadn't been there before in the other books, and it's really terrific. The books are great. If you love a sort of murder mystery with heart and humor, I can't recommend Thursday Murder Club books enough, but this most recent one, The Last Devil to Die, was really, really well done. He started off out the gate a great writer, but he's getting really, really good now.
2: You are going to notice a specific theme to my obsessive reading this year, and I'm going to start with The Wager, A
0: Tale of Shipwreck,
2: Mutiny, and Murder by David Gran. I can't believe you read this. This has been on my to-read stack for a while. He wrote
0: Killers of the Flower Moon. No kidding. Yeah.
2: Basically, this is the story in the 1750s. This is all going to be about British.
0: Oh, mer- sorry. By the way, one more point before you go. go this was supposed to be Scorsese's next film, an adaptation of this book. Oh, my God. It'd be an amazing movie. I think that's out the window
2: now. 1750s. All of these are about British maritime. Everything I'm going <laughs> to talk about today. Ship crashes. There's a great deal of hubris that takes place between the people, you know, by the way that the ships are socially classed. They end up on a beach. It's sort of a story about the worst parts of human nature, but... It's a very difficult thing to research, and I think the amount of work that was put into being able to tell this story by going back through any available documents and also having to sort through the subjective points of view that let you tell those stories was pretty fascinating. It doesn't really make you feel good at the end, but it does make you feel like, oh my god, how did people live through this? And I think that's one of the reasons I really like these kinds of stories. Then 1754 maybe not exactly right on the date, but, you know, at that point, you know, they're sailing around the world, but they don't know anything. Like they don't know what scurvy is. They don't know why halfway through a given journey, everybody, their joints start to fall apart and they start bleeding and they're in horrible agony. They don't know why yet, but they keep doing it. You know, this is one of the reasons that I read history. I think so often is that you want to know how people responded being in that world. People are no different now. They just had a different set of circumstances. And the way that people behaved on this is, it's a story of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. So, you know, that'll that'll sort of tell you what you need to, but the sort of egos clashing and, and, you know, class society in Britain and in the Navy, was pretty compelling.
1: As you could tell pro- from our podcast choices and a lot of just the discussion of this, you know, we enjoy entertainment and entertainment has been born out of Hollywood for better or for worse. And so when Hollywood, the oral history by Janine Bessinger and Sam Wasson came out, I believe Connor last year for Christmas, we both
0: got each other this book. Yeah, it was an O. Henry moment, yes.
1: Yeah, it's a real, <laughs> real fantastic moment because it was right up both of our alley. And I feel like over the past couple of years, there has been a tome thousand page-esque oral history book that completely kicked my ass. You know, last year it was the HBO book, Tinderbox. Mm. This year it was this Hollywood book that took me forever to get through, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. As you know, it took a wonderful journey from you know the 1920s all the way up to present day to hear from the people who made the movies that we love and their perspective on it. And it was just a it was just a joy to get lost in the Hollywood studio system of the 20s to the 50s, and then the rise of alternative or auteur cinema, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and then leading into the you know super powered agents and blockbuster of the 80s and 90s. 90s, and you know, and then you know, speculation as to where we'll go from there. Just it was, I thought it was a blast to read, and
0: love the oral history format. And the longer the better. Yeah, it was interesting because it was all compiled from AFI interviews that they yeah. had collected over the years. So it wasn't like Janine Bassinger and Sam Wasson, the writers, did these interviews. They couldn't right, go and yeah, make yeah. you know cultivate yeah. themes. They only had what was available to them. So there's some glaring holes, but you're never going to have this again. Like this starts, as Ron said, in the very beginning of Hollywood and goes to, yeah. I think, the 90s. Or even does it go beyond that? No, it
1: goes later. It goes later than that. And the only yeah, reason that is
0: because the AFI collected clicked all these interviews throughout the years. And and yeah. so you get people talking about what it was like contemporaneously to come to Hollywood in the 20s, 30s, 40s and find jobs and stumble into a job. And suddenly you're a cinematographer and suddenly you're a director. It must have been a wild time. But at the same time, there's like one page on Cary Grant because they just didn't have those interviews. So like it's interesting to see where the holes were, but I thought it was fascinating.
1: Yeah. Totally the only thing was after
0: a while, I had to give up on the idea of keeping track of who all the people were talking.
1: Oh, yeah. I just took the surfing approach of just
0: ride the wave. Right, because in it. the beginning, yeah, I kept, I kept yeah, flipping yeah. back to the table of contents. To, oh, that's okay. That's yeah. the costume. Then I was like, I can't. Remember. I had to do that with the HBO book yeah. after a certain point. Then you get yeah. the names you know. Then you're like, okay, yeah. I know who those people. In the beginning, I'm just like, okay, that's the that's the fucking just lighting go director. I don't really know. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it's a great history book.
1: There were cues in their comments, and and right. and the, the what I thought was great was that the research that was done, and then the thematic grouping of the quotes to make it seem like a discussion that wasn't really a discussion around a topic. I thought it flowed really
0: nicely. It's really well done. Speaking of history, this year I read Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks by Patrick Raiden Keefe, a writer that Josh and I both admire quite a bit. Yes. This is a collection of his New Yorker profiles. A bit of an anthology. It's an anthology, about 20, 25-page profiles on various people. They're not all bad people. It ends with his famous Anthony Bourdain profile. I guess he'd fall under the Rebels moniker. But, you know, there's like El Chapo's lawyer and like people like that and like, like or the most wanted arms dealer in the world. I couldn't put it down. It was so fascinating to dive into these different sometimes unsavory people and have Keith dive into what makes them tick and, and but some of them are heartbreaking. One of them was about the lawyer who goes around defending terrible people because no one else will defend them and they everyone deserves a day in court and she defended the Boston Marathon Bomber and and the woman who drove her kids into the lake, like people like that. And what does that do to someone who is not herself bad, but takes it all in and takes the abuse? It was really interesting, really great profiles. Some of them are funny, some of them are heartbreaking, some of them are interesting, some of them are exciting. One of them was was about how El Chapo is constantly escaping. Like it was just a really great overview of Patrick Raiden Keefe's interest in the senior side of life. You know, he did the whole book about the Sacklers and he has that sort of dialed in and he's very good at it. He is an exceptional writer and researcher. I mean, yep. it like I was about
2: to say, I think he's my favorite history writer. And then I was like, eh, Eric Larson is, and I think they actually have different aspects. I think Eric Larson is probably totally a, different, a yeah. better storyteller, but it's hard to argue with the sort of amount of information that Keith can, I'm just going to say distill, but it's not like he holds a
0: lot back. I almost put in the podcast section, one of his podcasts. And I remember that I had to listen to that last year, not this year. Good. I'll talk about that after the show. I went back and I, I did. This is not about English Maritime.
2: It isn't. I'd forgotten about it in there. In fact, it's very much not about English Maritime. I had finished Cavalier and Clay, and I, we talked about it at some point. And I was just so, you know, like to go back to something and have it be even better than you remember it. Oh, we did the, We did a, a book split on it. That was what it was. And yep. and afterwards, I was like, I need some more on. I need something. And so I said, all right, I'm going to read this Yiddish Policeman's Union, a novel. Which I believe was the book that he followed up. It was, because I read it next and I couldn't make it. Cavalier and Clay. So, and I don't know that I would have at the time, but I can't think of another book like this. It is an alternate history of a world where, following World War II, there was no Jewish homeland. So, Israel didn't happen, but none of the people wanted to take the Jews, refugees, which happened. But so they were placed in Alaska. And so what you have is this little area of Alaska that has been populated by Jewish people following uh, World War II until ooh, I'm trying to remember the time somewhere between the 70s and 90s, I think. And you're with these cops, and there's you know the one good cop trying to do the right thing before the partition happens because they're going to kick everybody out. It's going to revert back to the
0: U.S. So was the land not technically part of the U.S.? It is. It was like a, it was it's a, a little like Hong Kong, I guess.
2: Mm, I see. Is they're gonna be you know repatriated somewhere you know go live but they had their own sort of homeland but instead of it being in Israel with all of that mm. it's in Alaska interesting it reads a lot like if you were listening to New York City cops but there's a lot more Yiddish involved you know all of the details character details the thing that he does is tiny character moments I think better than yep. anything else and I, and I don't mean to minimize the rest of what he does in books but. He makes a character come alive by giving them details that you can immediately recognize in people you know or in yourself, and uh, there was a lot of that. But also, just this book was so fucking weird. It wasn't weird; like you could read it, I had, had no problem. But just as a concept, like I missed the part in the beginning that kind of told me what it was, and I'd be like, "Wait a minute, did this happen?" And so, like, I I went and I, I was like, oh, "Okay." Once I sort of got my grounding again, you know, I, I can't tell you like I loved it. It's one of my favorite books, but I was incredibly impressed by it, and I really enjoyed it. You know, people tend to read the same kind of things over and over again. And I read this, and I was like, I've never read that before.
0: Right. Really great. In 2020, the legendary newsman Pete Hamill died. He was one of the towering giants of New York media. He ran the New York Daily News. He ran the Post. He had uh, basically every job you can have in New York journalism. And he was one of the famous people, along with Breslin, at the time. And so when he died, he'd also been a novelist. And so in in many of his obituaries that I read, they listed his books, and they talked about him. And one of them caught my eye, and I ended up uh, picking it up around 2020, not reading it until this year. Called Forever, a novel by Pete Hamill, and it's a fantasy story about a young Irishman in, I believe, it starts off in the 1600s, who through Irish mysticism ends up gaining immortality only if he never leaves the island of Manhattan. Basically, Cassidy, and so he has to stay there through the history of New York, and so he's he's there, you know, Jesus. pre-revolution. He's there through the revolution, the Civil War, and it goes all the way up until the 2000s it was simultaneously an interesting fantasy story about this guy and he has things that happen to him and characters and there's conflict and things, but also it acts as a history of the city. And I kept finding myself constantly going to Wikipedia and many of the things he's involved with or the events that happen around him are th- real things that happen. He's there for when the city burns down. At one point it was mostly a city made up of wood buildings and it, there's a fire. Opinions still differ whether it was intentionally said or not that basically burned the entire city to the ground. It was allowed to be rebuilt in stone, cholera epidemics, war, this whole spy plot that he's he puts him into the middle of, which is a real thing. I ended up learning a hell of a lot about the city I was born in, and didn't know about, and found it interesting. The last bit is a little frustrating. He skips what I was looking forward to, the most interesting part. Like it goes from like the Civil War to suddenly he's like, it's like 1999. Was, oh, <laughs> you skipped a lot of things. He missed what all he, of Al Smith. Yeah, what about the telephone? Did he find that interesting? I really liked you know, learning about the city. And there's was a good story too. It was a, it's a revenge story and it's a fantasy story. And if you don't know anything about New York or the history of it, it really does open your eyes to things. And it was a really good book about New York as well as about this character. To continue
2: the British maritime tradition, and we're, we're going to definitely stick with this for the rest of the time, I read Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing. There's another book, but it's not on the list here. Uh, that also was part of that theme. Whereas The Wager was about how humans fall apart. Endurance was kind of the opposite. It's the best sort of version of that British, you all hang together and it's very tough and you get together and you respect the big man. I'm sure it's a bit of a legend, but it seems like because the story is so well documented that Shackleton, and I'm talking about this, like this is a thing everybody knows. But in 1914, they were going to go overland across Antarctica, but the ship got trapped in ice, and they were stuck out there for a year and a half or something like that, and they couldn't go anywhere, and the ship, the Endurance, got crushed. And this is all while World War One is going on, by the way. In fact, they were about to go, and, and they said, is it okay? Should we go? And uh, Churchill was like, no, go now, because otherwise you're not going to be able to, and we should do this. It's good for England. <sighs> Turned out it would be quite overshadowed. They get stuck on the ice. Their, their boat gets crushed by ice pressure, and they go through hell. And they stick together. You know, it's not like there's no clashing between people, but it's kind of incredible. And the and the story of how they tell it is that, you, you know, you can't believe that this would happen. But it is so well documented because so many of these guys kept journals. They kept notes. They can compare all these things to each other. It's a very specific timeline. You can tell the story about what happens on a given boat because three guys wrote about it. It was fascinating. It's one of those things you're like, well, why are people still talking about this? Maybe it was amazing at the time. Nope, it's amazing now. And you know, people have gone and they've tried to recreate this, you know, using modern technology or using you know contemporary technology from the time. And no one's been able to do what they did back then. The last bit, I think, is maybe the most fascinating thing. And I don't even want to give it away because I, and I know it's like a story and people know it. And you can. There was a documentary 20 years ago. Now it was a PBS documentary, but it does not include the amount of detail and, and interesting stuff that is in this book. It's a great history book of it. An adventure tale.
1: It's interesting you say that about the documenting and keeping journals and stuff like that. And while it's a very different world between Shackleton and 1980s hardcore band, but I read a book, A Roadie's Tale, written by Siv, who is the singer- of the aforementioned in the music section Gorilla Biscuits. He actually, before Gorilla Biscuits were formed, he was just a local scene circuit in the New York hardcore scene, you know, mostly built around the Lower East Side and CBGBs. And Youth of Today was like the big band of the time and summer 1987 they toured and civ went along as a roadie and took a meticulous journal throughout the entire summer and here we are now geez, almost 40 years later and he did a book which basically chronologically told the story of that tour from new york to california and back of you know a bunch of kids you know 18 19 20 21 year old kids in a van playing hardcore punk shows throughout the country which you did
0: uh, yeah, which yeah,
1: not nearly as much. Fame no, but you went uh,
0: in a van across the country and go no.
1: To... Yeah, I did, I did. But they had a lot more crazy stuff happen to them than mine. Uh, Civ is a very good frontman. Gorilla Biscuits is one of the best hardcore bands ever. But you know, he was 17 at the time, right? So he's a baby. And the book was written in a way that he recounted and told the stories of what happened to them, but with a lot of the perspective of someone who is now mu- now older and looking back on it with wisdom. And you know, if you're into this that kind of music, if you're into the idea of Tour life and roading, or you know, band life and the stuff that happens on the road and all that sort of stuff. It was just a fun read. Definitely would recommend it if you're in any of those Venn diagram of music and reading and that sort of thing. So, Roadie's Tale by Civ.
0: Spare by Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, was the autobiography that hit like a bomb in the world of books and culture. Uh, I think everyone knows the story of Prince Harry's recent conflicts with his family and his wife. This book I found more interesting as a really interesting look at PTSD because he's clearly been dealing with it his almost his entire life and I don't know how much of it been diagnosed or dealt with but from his, the death of his mother when he was a young kid to going to fight in the war and he was in combat to dealing with the paparazzi that triggers the PTSD of his mother to his family he's been clearly dealing with this stuff his whole life and when you get to the end of the book you see there was no choice for him but to excise himself from the firm and I thought it was really well done and fascinating I thought it was a really good read. And I came away respecting him a lot more than I did previously. I did not not respect him, but I didn't have strong feelings on him either way. But reading it, I felt like I really respected all the stuff he's gone through now. He has come out of it. None of those people are normal, but he's probably as normal as you're going to get in that family.
2: All right, so here's where this all comes from. Many years ago, following the release of the movie Master and Commander, colon, Far Side of the World, a movie I enjoyed. I thought, oh, oh, there seems to be books about these. And what I did not know is that Patrick O'Brien wrote a great number of books about Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. And these are stories of two men who are in the British Royal Navy in the Napoleonic era. So you're talking about 1800 to whenever the books end. There are 20 or 21 books and then one sort of unfinished one at the end. So I can't remember if the total is 21 or 22. I think it's 20 plus the unfinished one. I said, you know what? Let's revisit these quickly, and I'm through eight. Actually, I'm in the middle of book eight, the Ionian Mission. You've read them before, though, right? I read you know, at the, least the first before. three before, and then I think at the time it was far too daunting. I was like, I'm never going to get through this. But it turns out that once you sort of really get the the hang of it and keep going, it's a story about two friends over a very long period of history. And I think the thing that is the most appealing about it to me is that on the surface you would think, oh, these are just heroic stories of military deeds, you know, in the great man version. And really what it is, they're incredibly human stories about two flawed individuals who are great friends over a long period of time. And I think that there's a lot of humanity that is invested in them that we would recognize that isn't often taught or talked about in history. And so, you know, Jack has insecurities, whereas he's amazing in the sea, and he is brave, and he's... That can't be true. No Englishman had insecurities back then. Exactly. You know, and then Stephen Maturin is the incredibly intelligent Irish-Catalonian genius who just happens to be great friends with him, but he also has human frailties and weaknesses. And when I say that, like, every book has to have that, whatever. But I think what I recognize in here is things that are very human. It takes away from the heroic nature of the thing. And there's still heroicism that happens in there. You know, it gets into once you sort of understand the doings of the service that they're in and how things are organized and how people are allowed to interact with each other, how those systems work, then you can put it in a context that you can recognize when you, when you see these people doing it. And it is just, it's like any series, it, it, and it, it is made better by how long it is and how long it goes and how much time you get to spend with people. And I mean, I think that's the thing where we've talked about it with Game of Thrones, we've talked about it with the Expanse series, we've talked about it with all sorts of things, where the longer you get to spend with these characters, if those characters are well-constructed and the writer has the foresight to be able to do it, it's incredibly satisfying. It is the most satisfying. We see this in comic books sometimes. In mo- mainstream comics, a lot of times, there is the absence of development. But, you know, in some of those, like, 60-issue series or something, that you see it. And that's what there is a lot of here. It's an X factor that I think people don't – you go, oh, it's about ships and fighting and whatever. And it's, it's so much more that's going on there. It's incredibly compelling, and I really like the people. And also, being eight or so into this, Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe casting was perfect. They're so good. I don't know that they need to have made a bunch more, but if they did, it would have been fantastic. They could have kept making them like every five years so that they age at the same time. It would be wonderful. Now, I know why they won't. First of all, no one would pay for it, but I love it. I've only gotten more into it as I've kept
0: going. As I'm on eight. You so reading kept... this series as, a, as your middle-aged sort of, not crisis, but your middle-aged project, I'd like this for you. This is appropriate. Yeah. It's incredibly entertaining. It's not hard to get through at all. Yeah, it's delightful.
1: All right, I don't know how to follow that, but <laughs> <laughs> I did get for Christmas last year as a present, I got a book called Marvelous Manhattan, Stories of the Restaurants, Bars, and Shops That Make the City Special, written by Reggie Nadelson, who is a crime novelist and also a journalist. And basically, this book grabbed some of the columns that she had written for Tea, the New York Times style magazine, mm-hmm. that are just basically little spotlights on the great locations of Manhattan in terms of you know restaurants, bars, and shops, and it's you know sp- specifically you know limited to Manhattan and covers everything from you know Keen Steakhouse Ooh. to Le Bernardin to Serendipity to you know to the Film Forum to uh, Village Vanguard, uh, Il Buco, the Apollo, you know like all these just you know kind of real institutions and give reggie nadelson's you know kind of unique perspective as a lifelong new yorker if you love new york city you know connor you're born there i yep. grew up in the shadow of it spent a lot of time there it just it's a great kind of like celebratory of the, of the things that have made new york city as amazing as it is and the people behind them too
0: yeah i think i need to read that definitely worth
1: reading in that regard right up your alley
0: finally in 2020 when the tom hanks film greyhound came out he did a lot of press he was often asked about his favorite war books And he invariably mentioned Night Soldiers, a novel by Alan First. Alan First has written a series of very famous spy war novels set in the Cold War. But this was his, I think his first, if not his first, his most famous. And this is one of the books that Tom mentioned. I call him Tom. (laughs) I bought it in 2020. Of course, sat on my giant. My two-read stack is about three feet high, in all honesty. So it takes me a while to get through it. Do you think you ever will get through it? Some books have been there for over a decade, Ron. So you tell me. So
2: no. That's not how we look at this, Ron. It's it's a living,
0: <laughs> breathing organism. So anyway, I've done a bunch of nonfiction. I wanted to do a fiction. So I pulled this off the shelf, expecting sort of a light, breezy, Cold War you know, spy book. And instead, I got this epic, I think it's like 500-page book that almost felt like a great American novel more than a spy novel about this Russian, well, he's not Russian. He's like from Bulgaria. It was part of the Soviet Union at the time. Guy who gets pulled into the KGB in the 30s, ends up being sent to the Spanish Civil War, which was... Sort of the rehearsal for World War II. Then through World War II and then post-war, Cold War, he ends up in Paris. We follow this guy through basically the entirety of the Soviets' operations pre, during, and post-war, where he ends up splitting off from the KGB and joining the other side. But amazing, great historical novel. There's a sequence in there that was so visceral that made me uncomfortable to read, and it's a combat sequence. Really well done, really amazing. I would have read more, but I just was so wiped out after reading it that I had to go back to something lighter and breezier after that. Much heavier than I was expecting, and I really, really liked it a lot. It was a really incredible Josh. You would love this book.
2: Okay, you
0: don't have to read. It. I'm just telling you, you would love <laughs> I it. I have 13 of these things left to go. <laughs> I didn't you to read it now. You've got to finish your yeah. Napoleonic Wars books. And then, and and then, then I got I got those
2: it. Churchill books. You, those are just always hanging over me.
0: Oh, right. I forgot about those. I didn't
2: forget them. I look at them all the time.
0: I still have that Washington biography from 2003. Never finished it, it. So those are the books we wanted to talk about. But now in the final segment, as always, we do our regular weekly Pick of the Week comic show where Josh and I and sometimes our buddy Ryan and sometimes other friends talk about the week's new comics. So we do a lot of comic talk. We like to end the show on just a brief rundown of some of our favorite comics again disclaimer there are many great comics these are some of them so let's talk josh let's quickly run down some of our favorite titles of the year it would be very difficult
2: as a person who's talked about the comics that i and we have this year without mentioning fantastic four ryan north's taking over from dan slot fantastic four run that you know, Connor and I both loved, and then taking it in a completely different direction. But that we also love—it's really been a fantastic sort of one-two punch. It's exactly what you'd want. Like when you really love a run and it ends, and then the next one comes along, and you don't want somebody trying to imitate it. They do something else, and it is also great. And this is after what I would say is for me a dearth of Fantastic Four books that I've really loved for most of my memory. You know, a lot of the stuff that's fantastic, huh, the great Fantastic Four runs, you know, weren't really recent. It's been wonderful and thoughtful and smart and funny and really getting into the character family stuff wrapped in sort of one concept that is still going on, but also has a definitive ending. I don't want him to stop, but I don't know how you keep up this pace.
0: I think the best book of the year, we talked about it a lot. It was pick of the week a lot in the show, it was The Human Target, Tom King and Greg Smallwood's 12 issue, out of continuity, noir story of The Human Target investigating his own murder, The suspects are all members of the Justice League International, the uh, celebrated Justice League series from the 1980s, featuring transcendent artwork from Greg Smallwood. Just wonderful character studies of these comedic characters, but put into a darker, more noir story. It was mind-blowing how good that book was, and the fact that it ended made me sad, even though we all knew it would. (laughs) Every bit of it was great. It was all single-issue stories of the investigation telling a larger narrative, And some of those single issues are among the best single issues I've ever read. It was that good. And Greg Smallwood is that much of a gigantic talent. And I hope he draws more and more comics and does not disappear like so many of the great talents seem to.
2: If you only had one of either of those people on that series, it would have been a great series. Like if you had Tom King writing it and telling that story that way, and they had another artist on it who was, you know, competent, good, whatever, it would have been great. If somebody wrote a story that was pretty good. You know, when you read it and it was only the Greg Smallwood art, you'd be like, that was great. The two of them together is just, it's unfair. Right. I don't know if this is a left field pick, but I'm going to go with Immortal Sergeant. This is from Image. It is Joe Kelly and Ken Nomura. Uh, You may remember them from I Kill Giants, which was a very big book quite a while ago, which is other than visually, because Ken Nomura incredibly specific and unique style that almost you almost don't know how he gets away with it it's incredibly it's incredibly spare It's to almost be like if you saw some of this on its own you'd be like this is not a professional comic book artist but that is the thing about the comic book form and comic book storytelling if you make it work you make it work and it doesn't matter and there are no rules in that first issue i thought i do not know what to make of this at all second issue i'm not even sure if i had it but a few in i was like oh this is a really interesting and special thing Again, I've said this on other things. we talked about this. I don't know what this is. I have no. it's kind of a cop story. It's kind of a father-son story. But in the comic book form, it is something
0: completely new and unique. Really one of the highlights of the year. Mark Russell's been writing a lot of books lately. And they haven't all hit the mark with me. But Traveling to Mars, I think, is one of his better ones. It's the story of a man in the future. In the future, which all of our resources are being plundered. And we're desperate for more. Corporation sends this man dying of cancer on a ship to Mars so that he can claim it for the corporation, so that all of the resources that have been discovered via Mars Rover can be claimed by the corporation. Almost the entirety of the, I believe it's 11-issue run, we still have one issue to go, took place just on the ship, on the journey, in this guy's head, looking back at his life. If you're at all familiar with Mark Russell, you know a lot of it's to do with American capitalism and religion and all the things that sort of go into modern life and how that can grind people down and all the mistakes he's made along the way and regrets and the hopes and the fears and the loves he's had. It's been a really wonderful series. And then to reach Mars in the last couple of issues and have that turn into a whole debacle in ways I will definitely not spoil. I can't wait for the final issue. And it's been a really terrific, and I don't say heartwarming, but one of those Mark Russell books that makes you laugh and think and cry and wonder about life in a way only only he can do. This is becoming a Marvel-heavy list, I'm realizing, but there you are. The Amazing Spider-Man, I thought it was a pretty
2: good run before this. I think that was the Nick Spencer book. Zeb Wells comes on. And every issue then has become like this must read romp venture, really. Every time I read an issue of Amazing Spider-Man, I think this is what Amazing Spider-Man should be. And I don't know how to explain that. But Amazing Spider-Man has a very specific idea in my heart about what it should be like. And this book is like that. I really love how consistent it has been and sort of how long this run has gone on and even concepts and themes in it that I don't necessarily like are still handled well and handled dramatically and they make me want to keep reading it you know when you'd see Peter Parker Spider-Man or Web of Spider-Man or a book just called you know Spider-Man it's never the same as Amazing Spider-Man Amazing Spider-Man has to be a thing and this is that thing I don't know if that made any sense but I think if you're a comic book reader you know with the connor you back me up at all
0: yeah yeah we're the only people on the internet who like the book but well, that's fine really yeah, everyone hates it. Batman, Superman, World's <laughs> Finest is my favorite ongoing series. Mark Wade and mostly Dan Mora doing the DC universe in Mark Wade's little continuity bubble that is delightful. It's the DC universe that's been missing for at least a decade now. Every time I think they're running out of ideas, or and nope, we got a new crazy one, and we get lots of guest stars. And Dan Mora draws the hell out of it. It's wonderful when he's not on the book and drawing Shazam, and there's a guest artist. It's usually pretty good. It's, it's solid. But really, it sings when it's Wade and Mora together. The character designs, the incredible action sequences. You know, if I was in charge, I would make this the DC universe that we get in the rest of the books because it's way more fun than all the dour business going on everywhere else.
2: All right, moving along, we're back to She Hulk and the Sensational She Hulk, which are two series, but are the same series. They have numbers, they have legacy numbering, they go in a way. You know, Rainbow Rowell has stepped up and owned this book and turned it into a longer-running She-Hulk series than we have seen in the time, a completely unique book that still also feels very much like a modern version of this She-Hulk character who is among a small contingent of people, I think having a moment in comics, if you like good comics, and I think that she has an incredible respect and love for the old John Byrne uh, She-Hulk series, which sort of, you know, uh, cemented who that character was to a certain extent, but has been modernized and updated and brought to by a female perspective, which I don't know how good John Byrne was at having that perspective, but I don't know.
0: Probably not as good as Rainbow Round. Probably not.
2: I just think that she puts an incredible emotional intelligence into her characters. It's fun. It's silly, but there's also like action. The relationships are really, is you know, she's a YA writer, first and foremost, much bigger in that than in comic books, which I know for comic book people is hard to understand. You know, again, every time an issue comes out is delightful. The fact that she gets to keep doing this book is great. And the art is always, it's a couple of folks, Andre Genelais being sort of the main one, the art's always perfect for it. The covers are great jen Bartel covers you know. you know we're not super kind to covers these days so those covers are special
0: let's get back to the fantastic four and talk about clobber in time the mini series came out earlier this year was it Steve scroach it was the scroach the scroach really killed it with this one it was a wacky sort of not it wasn't multi multiversey, but it was a trip through what was it time or i can't remember you put this on here i didn't do my research the point is this, it was a wonderful team-up book where every issue The Thing teamed up with a different character from Marvel to fight this time-hopping or dimension-hopping, whatever it was, bad guy. The art was out of this world, yes. a little too body horror There was one, one issue where The Thing's plate started falling off and he was all gooey underneath <laughs> and that really stuck with me. Great team-ups, Wolverine, Doctor Doom, characters like that, terrific characterization of The Thing Ben Grimm.
2: There was one story, but you could have read any issue yeah, on its own.
0: Really great. It's been a wonderful many years of Fantastic Four stuff. And The Clobber Time was just another great entry. It wasn't involved with the other book, it was totally on its own in its own bubble. If you like The Thing, if you like Marvel, it really goes through a lot of Marvel stuff. It was a great book. There was that one where who was lecturing in that issue? Was The Thing doing a TED Talk? Yeah, that was it. Really great, really great miniseries. I love how you're asking me questions three and a half hours ago. I don't know. I'm also sick.
2: I was told there'd be no math. I'm looking at my list now, and I like all the books I put on it, but I do have the feeling like I'm leaving things out. But then I look and I say, nope, these books are great. I don't know if it's my wild card, but it's my boom card, Wild's End, which comes from writer Dan Abnett and an artist whose name I don't remember from Boom Studios. This is the second miniseries, although I never read the first one and don't need are to Are you have. sure? I read the first issue and then forgot about it and didn't read the rest of it. I read the first one. What we have here is Cute Little Animals, living in post-war rural Britain. And this story is pretty much War of the Worlds, where these creatures come down. The main characters come back from a fishing trip, like a commercial fishing trip, and they find out like everyone has been co-opted by these giant lantern-shaped aliens who hypnotize them into doing work for it. Oh, Christ, it's a British maritime story. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Josh. Hey, you know... Could it's you be more New England? It's time... To <laughs> be honest, that is literally my ancestry. I mean, like, I'm not that's even I mean. kidding. Like, my mom's side of the family, that's where they come from. It's in your DNA. British maritime people. I've never wanted to go to sea or be on a boat in any way, though. It's really charming characters. You know, they're British country folk, and they're written that way. The sort of the dialogue, which is... um you know, when they sound like themselves in the writing? Oh my God, that's how tired I'm getting. You know, they, their accents is written as they you read them. You know what I'm talking about? Like
0: most people don't do
2: it great, but it's really
0: lovely. You mean phonetic dialogue?
2: Yeah, it's authentic, but also a little bit like, you know, movie of the wiki. And it works really it's well. It's a
0: little like Bert.
2: Yeah. From Mary Poppins. Well, no, that's a terrible accent, isn't it? There's a little story going on where they think that the older dad is, you know, sort of losing his marbles a little bit, and the son or the grandson, and where it all fits. And so, like, you know, there's two things going on: this is the big drama and the small drama. And it's beautiful and it's fun. And and uh, every time one of them comes out, I get excited. That's the best mark of a comic book to me. And a person who reads way too many comic books.
0: I did not plan it this way, but finally we're going to talk about Giant Days, also from Boom Studios. I didn't know where Wildson was from. I didn't mean it to be this way. Giant right. Days was Originally a webcomic in 2011, and then it was a comic in 2015, 2019. But I didn't read it till this year when it came out in these wonderful library edition hardcovers. I'd heard a lot about it, but just hadn't had an excuse or chance to read it till now. There are seven volumes, I'm, I'm through five of them right now, and it's about these three girls in college in England. It's a slightly exaggerated, elevated slice of life. It's more comedic, slightly more cartoony, but it's basically a slice of life series about college and. It's been wonderful, it's been funny, it's been heartwarming, it's like college, it's a mess, They relationships, they break up, they get back together, they cheat, they, you know, all kinds of things, that, all the things that happen when you're 20, 19, living on your own for the first time, trying to figure out life. The cartooning is wonderful. Josh, do you remember that series, The British Bake Off? Yes. That's the team behind The Giant Days. Oh, no kidding. Why have you never mentioned this on a show I've been on? This book? Yeah. I'm mentioning this for the first time ever oh, here.
2: can you do that on the year-end wrap-up?
0: Yeah, I've I read it in hardcovers. I'm reading it in hardcovers. Fair covers. enough. That's fair. It's really made me miss college. I've maybe me pull out. I don't think it's hard to make you miss college. No, I pulled out the photo albums for the first time in years after you know after I got through a couple of these and like it was, it just really does a great job. Even if it's slightly more comedic, slightly more craziness that goes on, and then would in real life. But it really captures that feeling of being that age and trying to be on your own and trying to act like an adult, but you're really not kind of an adult and going through all the trials and tribulations of friendship and love and all that stuff. And I've really been enjoying it. I don't want it to end, but I'm, I'm flying through the books because I can't put them down. I have read an entire hardcover in an evening because I just can't put it down. But uh, I've been trying to portion out these last couple because I don't, I don't want it to be over, but it's a terrific comedic slice of life book, giant days from boom, from boom box and boom studios. So there you go. Those are some of the, our favorite comics from the year. And those are our films, TV shows, music, books, podcasts, and comics. That we enjoyed this year. Ronnie's still with us. Oh yeah. Okay.
1: I'm enjoying that you guys enjoy Amazing Spider-Man because Connor is right. Everybody else hates it. <laughs> That's so
0: weird. I mean yeah. you know what? It isn't, because things weird I like. Weirdier. Year.
1: Weirdier. Year. That's for sure.
0: So let's plug some things. Let's talk about some other shows to do Ronnie, let's we want to talk about your shows.
1: Long-time listeners know that I also did a podcast called All About Android that was about the Android operating system and mobile phones, stuff like that. Well, that show ended this past summer, ended at the end of June. Then two weeks later, we started up a new show called Android Faithful. We go to androidfaithful.com where you can subscribe and support on Patreon and do all that fun stuff, take a listen. We live stream every Tuesday out to YouTube and to Twitch every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern. And then we also release the podcast on Tuesday evenings. And it's myself, my brother-in-arm, Jason Howell, and uh, went to it Dad and Michelle Rahman with a myriad of guests that come on to talk about the world of Android. So if you're into that sort of stuff, definitely check out androidfaithful.com. We appreciate the Venn diagram between iFanboy and Android Faithful. I know there's a few of you out there and I love you for it. So thank you very much. And then also, I thought know earlier at the very beginning of this marathon podcast, I talked about the pinball movie. Definitely go check it out. But if you like pinball, check out Scorebit. We got a mobile app on iOS and on Android where it helps you keep track of your pinball scores. And yeah, fun stuff and more exciting stuff coming from Scorebit in 2020 for so check it all out at scorebit.io does
0: scorebit have like a global leaderboard
1: we're working on that there is a global leaderboard in the app on the games level so you can see who has the highest score on an individual game you don't do kind of global leaderboard like the number one player or anything like that just because the games are too different you know so it's not really fair you
2: know you would have to do it by the specific game and there's too right,
1: many exactly yeah yeah
0: are you on any of those leaderboards no no i'm not well it's all gambling anyway it's all <laughs> no luck. it's not
2: <laughs> and they should have put those out when they got rid of the
0: liquor. They should have taken those and the and the No dancing, no pinball, no liquor. Why have any fun in life? It's hard enough as It was hesitation. a
1: tough time in the thirties, that's for sure.
0: This is our final show of the year. We take a couple weeks off for the holidays, spend time with our families, relax, recharge our brains. You can hear Josh and I desperately need that. But if you find yourself needing shows, listen, if you're having your family over for like a holiday dinner and it's getting tense, why don't you slap on a media explode We did a year in mailbag. That was our most recent one. We, we answered some bunch of email questions that were super fun. We always enjoyed the Bag. We also had a special edition review of the Marvels. These are just our most recent shows. We did a BookSplode review of the first four volumes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first 12 issues of the original series. And Josh talked to comic book writer Sina Grace in the TalkSplode. Those are our most recent shows. Any of those will work for a tense holiday family dinner. Just throw it on in the background instead of music. People will definitely appreciate it. And if you do, please let us know. We'll be returning with our Pick of the Week show, number 909, on the 7th of January, 2024, which is a number that shouldn't be real. But it is. Apparently, I we're remember still alive. getting
2: a credit card when I got out of college and it said, this expires in 2004. And I thought, that's an insane number. But now it was 19 years ago. <laughs> I think of sense. that all the time.
0: So if you need something to listen to, there's all those. You can always go back and listen to our old shows. But it's always nice to hear some of our most recent stuff. We appreciate everyone who listens throughout the year. So now... Where can you find all those shows? You can find our library, which at this point is over 1,300 shows over at ifanboy.com or wherever podcasts are sold. They're all up on the feed. You can find them there. You can follow us at comics on Instagram to find out what the pick of the week is before the show comes out on a regular week. And we'll sometimes do the best of the week in panels on there as well. Those are all there. Individually, we are C.S. Patrick on Instagram, J.A. Flanagan on Instagram, RonXO on Instagram, and I assume X and threads as well. Correct. I've seen you on threads. Yeah, I've been on the threads. Yep. I've seen your post on those little threads, things they try to get you to click on when you're on Instagram. No, they didn't give me those. They don't know I like him. I say, I know that guy. (laughs) So yeah, check that out.
2: That credit card I was referring to, by the way, it had Spider-Man on it. And I was so proud at that point that I had a credit card with Spider-Man. Did you you ever pay it off or you still owe money on it? We worked out something. (laughs) turns out that interest will compound. I mean, you really have no idea how quickly you can just be sent into ruin. I was a master balance transfer. That's what I was. I avoided interest at all costs. Still can. That's where I live. Uh, you can subscribe to youtube.com slash ifanboy. There are
0: buttons, I understand, under the videos. What do those buttons do? Ron, you must know. They can be smashed. What does the bell do? Uh, Wait, don't tell me. I don't want to have that mystery. Okay. Right, I don't want to have the mystery. Subscribe to our YouTube through.
2: page. You can get any of the audio shows we do. We put them up on there too if that is a way that you like to listen to things. I believe if you subscribe to the YouTube service or whatever it is at an exorbitant fee, then you can just listen to those things offline like you would anything else. But also our old video shows and everything that we did. Our, our body of work uh, lives there. Visual body of work for when they are viewers and not just listeners. It is good if you like those, by the way, and you know engage with them. That That's good for us. You could write a review for this podcast you could leave a star rating on one of the many podcasting applications and locations: your Apple Podcast, Spotify, Audible, Amazon.
0: Many. Ron, where are you listening to podcasts?
1: Pocketcasts.
0: Pocketcasts. Pocket there you
1: go. Awesome. Awesome app.
0: Is it better than Overcast? Yes. Okay. Okay.
1: Overcast okay. is iOS only.
2: Oh. Oh. I didn't know I was getting into an internecine struggle.
1: No. I mean, that's just it's just what it is.
0: Fair enough. Ron, is Pocketcast approved? Or the other way around. I don't know what's happening anymore. (laughs) My brain is leaking out of my ears. Thanks for listening this year to any show. This one, if this is the only one you listen to, if you listen to every show or some of the shows or one of the shows or just the shows Ron was on, thanks for listening. We appreciate every listener.
1: What year is this? So it's 2005 we started. So this is what, our 18th year?
0: Yes.
2: All right. So
1: thank you for 18 years.
2: You're obviously not on the show that often because Connor and I can't let that number go
1: yeah, I, I try to, to well, even, even I try to ignore it. 18 years. The show ago, could go to war. It's a very long time, but uh, thank you, to, <laughs> thank you, thank you to everybody. The show could go to maritime war.
2: <laughs> well, no, you could go to war at a much earlier age than the Napoleonic. I oh, know back like then that it much. was like 12. Go there, no, you're, you're younger than the that. decks. You could have a Loblolly lolly boy on there who was four years old. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I just said Loblolly boy, like anyone would know. But that's a real thing. Like someone wouldn't check me on that, be like, yeah, oh, it's true. I would say that normally on this show we sound healthier.
0: Yes, that's true. But as that. I
2: started to think about saying it, I thought.
0: That's not necessarily
2: true. Like, if we're looking right. at percentages, well,
0: is it true? I don't know. So thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for listening all year long. We appreciate you. And until next year, I'm Connor.
2: I'm Ron. I'm Josh. We will see you. Probably. We'll
0: conspire as we dream about fire To face unafraid the plans that we made
1: Walking in the wood
0: face unafraid the plans that we made walking in a winter wonderland walking in a winter wonderland walking in a winter wonderland